When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. The NBA draft was yesterday, though for many of you, you listen to this on, on the weekend, so a couple days ago, and I wanted to talk with it with longtime friend of the podcast, Sam Vecini, who covers the NBA draft for the Sporting News and many other parts of sports at various outlets, does a great job. And as often is the case with the two of us, we go long. The podcast is more than two hours. I think it's close to 210. One of the longer ones that we've done going through some of the bigger moves, some of the smaller moves, and of course the big Jimmy Butler to the Timberwolves trade, which we do not start with. We get into that later. Started with what I think is a a more a story that got a little bit lost in the shuffle, which is crazy considering everything. I'll tease it. I'll leave it that way. And a lot of other things. We also talk about 2018 a little bit, which is fun. And it's what happens when you talk for two hours. You can get in a lot of different topics. So this episode is brought to you by Blue Apron, the amazing food delivery service. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm and get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. So here we go. Sam Vicini. Thanks for coming on. Danny, I'm always happy to come on and join you. It is Friday after the draft, there has been a weight lifted off of my shoulders. No more, you know, 17-hour days trying to scout and trying to create content. No more concern over not getting a single pick of my mock draft right. Just just bliss and happiness for the next, like, three weeks. Yeah, until Summer League... Some, well, it's not even three weeks. Summer League's, like, two weeks. Yeah, but Summer League's be- two weeks, and free agency is one week. So, like, yeah. really, really, it's just, like, seven days of bliss. Yeah. But I feel like because the trade happened over the weekend and there was so little drama surrounding it when it came to draft night, the overall basketball media complex, and I would say it includes me, lost a little bit of track of how big the Markel Fultz 1-3 trade is. Oh, yeah. It's genuinely like a franchise-changing trade for the next decade for each team that made it. Like... You So, like, Jimmy Butler gets traded last night, and I know that before the podcast you said you didn't want to start here, but I'm going to jump in and throw this as a comparison. I think the Fultz number three trade is way more important for the course of the NBA than the Jimmy Butler trade that happened last night. Because you're talking about two franchises that are in the same division, that are going to play each other four years, that kind of represent the future of the Eastern Conference after the Cleveland Cavaliers, and... These two teams, you know, 
make this trade where there's a clear number one player on the board, Markel Fultz. And I know that Danny Ainge said after the draft, he would have taken Jason Tatum number one anyway, but like they end up trading the number one pick and they end up trading this, uh, trading for the number one pick and they end up trading not only number three, but also this Lakers pick that may or may not be super valuable. This Kings pick that may or may not be super valuable. It's just a crazy, crazy trade. And it got even in some ways more wild when you consider that that trade happened before the Lakers big trade, which fundamentally changed the value of the protection that had already been negotiated. And I think it was a good idea for Boston said this at the time, thought it even more strongly after, to make it double-sided protection. So they Mm -hmm. weren't going to get the number one pick. Philly wasn't going to put it there because while I don't think the Lakers are going to be great next year, Brooke Lopez is, is a very talented basketball player who can help them a lot. Yeah, like Brooke Lopez is a better basketball player right now than D'Angelo Russell. Like D'Angelo Russell is going to get all of the headlines because he's such a great fit for Kenny Atkinson. He is, to me, going to be a star in the NBA. Like I still have full faith that what we've seen from D'Angelo Russell so far is going to portend stardom down the road. I know he does a lot of stupid stuff. I can't remember if I can curse on this podcast or not, but uh, I know he does a lot of stupid stuff on the floor. But his overall skill set is just incredible. And once you get him in a situation where he has actual floor space to work with, he's going to be awesome. But Brooke Lopez at the same time, he's already awesome. He was like 25, 2 and 2 last year. And he's a really good defensive rebounder who doesn't get credit for it because he doesn't actually grab rebounds. He's awesome at boxing out. And that actually meshes really well with what Julius Randle does. And the only way they're going to get, get rid of Julius Randle is if they acquire Paul George. And if they acquire Paul George, obviously this pick is not transferring to the Boston Celtics. I think we can say that with fairness. Um, and it becomes this 2019 Kings pick. So yeah, I agree. Really, really smart by, uh, you know, Danny Ainge deciding to double protect that pick. But this isn't a surprise, right? Like the Celtics are one of the most well-run organizations in the NBA. Like people can make jokes about Danny Ainge overvaluing his assets, but like the guy is awesome at evaluating and getting things done and, you know, making sure that the right things are done. I I don't really get the concern. I think the concern can sometimes come with just the idea of converting the idea of a ceiling, you know, that it's always hard when you think a team is like always on the verge. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, that they're never going to get to the fireworks factory from, from it. Like there's some of that with the Celtics, and that can be hard. I mean, even though, and it's so amazing to say that for a team that was the one seed in the East, but it's because as my friend Tim Bontemps said on this podcast, he called Isaiah last year a, a, a fake all-star, He, which ended up not being true. But they were kind of a fake number one seed in that way, because the reason they were the one is because Cleveland didn't care. But yeah. you think about how much better they could be, and so you go, you go in that direction. And with Boston, you kind of went, like, for me, the frustration was, I saw the path once they got the number one pick of, oh, they get Markel Fultz. If he's good, then they do something with Isaiah, whether that's let him go or trade him or whatever. Yep. And if he's not good, then you go in a different direction. And now they're just in a very, very different spot. And it could work. I mean, you like Jason Tatum more than I do. But the decision that they made, especially in light of the fact that it sounds like the two guys that they're targeting in free agency are Gordon Hayward, who's a three, and Blake Griffin, who's a four, that this morass of forwards that they've created, who are all talented and all worthwhile, it just, like, they're going to have to figure it out, and I think Danny Ainge is talented enough to do it, but they've given themselves a lot of questions that they just need to answer. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm someone who's not super concerned about having 
too many wings because as we talk about on this show all the time, you really can't have too many wings, right? Like it, it's really difficult, I think, to have too many wings because you can move them up and down the lineup two through four. You can realistically have like six good of like good wings get twenty five to thirty minutes a game a night, and it's it's just easier for me to figure out a way to make those wings movable as well. You know, like for instance, we saw Justin Anderson get moved as the main piece in the Nerlens Noel trade. And yeah, Nerlens obviously has his issues in terms of uh, going to be a free agent, maturity issues, uh, stuff that drove his costs down. But there's no way that Justin Anderson should be the main asset in a Jimmy Butler trade, or I'm sorry, in a Nerlens Noel trade. I don't think that anyone would deny that. But the fact that wings are so much more valuable than bigs right now says a lot about the NBA. And it doesn't look like that's going to change in the immediate because a lot of the guys even who are listed as forwards in this class are better as fours. And some of them, I mean, Jonathan Isaac might eventually even be a five. I think that'll be a little while from now. And so the true twos and threes were few and far between in this draft. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I think that, you know, you can look up and down my board, right? And, you know, depending on what you think of Malik Monk, he was probably kind of a true two, but not really a... Uh, all wing two. He's more of a guard two. Um, I, I do think that Josh Jackson is a two three. I, I don't really think of him as a three four. Uh, yeah, same here. You know, Luke Kennard is about Luke Kennard and Donovan Mitchell, I think, are more like on the guard side of the spectrum. But it's really hard to find like true wings, you know, like Wessel Wundu. I think part of the reason that Wessel Wundu went number 33. If I remember correctly, maybe 32. I can't remember which one, but he goes to Orlando's because he's a six foot seven wing with a seven foot one wingspan with ridiculous athleticism who had point guard skills in college, but can't really shoot and can't do a lot of stuff. But like the fact that he has true wing bona fides athletically and in terms of skill, like you can't really overvalue that. Like I talk to NBA scouts pretty regularly and a lot of the things that they bring up is that this is a league built on just genetic freaks, right? And like, you can obviously get by being Stephen Curry and being, you know, preternaturally gifted in terms of skill and in terms of hand-eye coordination and everything. But so many of the role players and so many of the guys in the NBA, like for instance, even Malcolm Brogdon, who doesn't really get brought up as like a genetic freak because he's not a good athlete necessarily by NBA standards. He's still a guy that's six foot six with a near seven foot wingspan with the biggest hands of like any guard in the NBA, you know? So these Two, three wings, they're so incredibly valuable. And finding guys who can play on the wing like a Gordon Hayward or something, it just gives you so much more lineup versatility. And I don't think you can have too many of them, which is why I'm fine with what Boston is doing. Well, and Boston getting Ojale late was surprising in that way, too. Just, I mean, just a joke. Like, I don't know what and what these other NBA teams are doing, not taking Shemi Ojale like in from 25 to 37, you know, I get that not everyone is going to have him in the top 20 like I did. But for instance, if you're the Lakers and you don't really have like one of those three, four combo forwards, and if you're, uh, if you're Utah maybe, and Joe Johnson is getting up in age and you just traded Trey Lyles, uh, maybe that makes sense for you as well. And, uh, oh my God, of all teams, Portland, right? Like Portland, I know that they have Al Farouk Aminu and, you know, Maurice Harkless, but they need defense and shooting more than anything. And getting a guy like Shimmy Ojale, who can actually play both ways of the floor, 
It's just a no-brainer to me. And you end up taking Caleb Swanigan, who I also graded as a first-round pick at number 28, but he doesn't fit what you need. Like, I, I don't... There there were a lot of moves at the end of the first round that I just didn't really get. And that's not where I wanted to go, but a point I wanted to make is that I think there's going to be some resonance for the group from Bam Adebayo. So I'm going to just go through the guys. Bam, Justin Patton, DJ Wilson, TJ Leaf, John Collins, Harry Giles, and Jared Allen. All those guys, there are reasons that I like almost all of them. I've seen a few of them play in person. I've watched all of them play on TV. But when you think about where this league is going and you think about what some of these best teams have, they're going to be sitting there going, yeah, Terrence Ferguson, OG, Semi Ojale, like these type of guys. And be like, they're going to be scrounging, trying to find those, and they're going to be maybe not as good and maybe not on rookie scale contracts. Big men just available. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the it's not even like a secret anymore in the NBA, I feel like, but you know, one of the things that is a fact about the NBA right now is that we're way oversaturated with big men. Like, we are so oversaturated with how many teams want to play actual bigs. And here we have Tom Thibodeau drafting Justin Patton and uh, adding to their four-center uh, conglomerate where I guess they're going to continue to play two true bigs all the time. But like most other teams around the NBA realize the way that this is going is the way of being small, being mobile, being versatile, being able to guard on the perimeter, being able to cut off penetration, uh, being able to shoot and space the floor. And so many of these big guys just can't do that. Yeah, so we'll have to see how that works out. But let's get back to a guy who does shoot and space the floor and does a lot of other stuff, Markel Fultz. I personally love the fit of Fultz and Simmons. The comparison I made, and I am not trying to compare these guys as players. It's more of like a take your glasses off. It's a little bit blurry fit is the idea of the balance between LeBron and Kyrie, where one guy is a ball-dominant forward who you probably want the ball in his hands a lot for various reasons, and the other guy can both be the man when the main the other guy's off the floor and also still function when he's taking on closeouts, being a secondary actor. Oh, yeah. That, 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 to me, is the exact thing that Ben Simmons needed, right? So last year at the draft, I don't know that people really remember this, but like there was a little bit of a debate between Ben Simmons and Brandon Ingram. Would you say that's fair? There was a little bit. Yeah, yeah like certainly, especially because Simmons had all that stuff of like, oh, his team wasn't good and all that. But yeah, there was actually because Ben Simmons was really talented. But to me, he wasn't a sure thing. He was intriguing and really, really good. But he wasn't in that, you know, no brainer class like Carl Anthony Town. Right. And, and, you know, like for me, like I have Markel Fultz ahead of Ben Simmons. Uh, like in a vacuum in terms of what player is a little bit better and who I would rather build around. But part of the reason that I feel like there was a little bit of a debate and in a vacuum, I had Ben Simmons on just a slightly different tier than what I had Brandon Ingram on. But, you know, why there was a little bit of a debate was the idea of it is going to be incredibly difficult to build a roster around Ben Simmons, right? Because, you need him to play the four. You need to have a floor spacing center next to him. And you need to have a guard that can not only facilitate in the half court, but is also capable of playing off the ball when Ben wants to play on the ball and be a primary facilitator, both in transition and in the half court. In finding both of those things for an NBA team is very, very difficult. And here, Philadelphia did it in like a draft and a half. Like, And not only that, but they did it with a guy who's on the same age timeline yeah. because 
I had gotten really into the idea of them getting George Hill. Yes. George Hill is yes. a talented player, fills a lot of those gaps, though he doesn't have the same kind of skill off the bounce that Markel Fultz projects to. But he's way older. He's 31, I believe. And so they got that on a player who, in terms of the age perspective, is right in line. They didn't. They did have to give up a meaningful asset. I mean, that pick that they're the pick that they're giving up is probably going to be a value. It's not, clearly not going to be the number one pick. That possibility in 2019 is one of the most amazing ones that is out there. Can I, can of I talk another, about that the, real quick? Sure. Like, I think that's actually a really risky pick to try and acquire whenever you're giving up for again for me, who was the clear number one player in this draft. Because I don't think the Lakers are going to be a bottom five team next year. Well, I'm talking about the Kings. No, I know. That's the part of it that I think is more interesting. But yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah, I agree. So with like you. going going to the next year with the Kings, not only are you going two years out in terms of when you get your valuable asset, but you're putting a lot on the Kings ineptitude, which in the past has been a really good bet. Um, you know, betting against the Kings has been the uh, quote unquote, as David Kahn would say, manna from heaven for quite a few NBA teams in the past. But I, I see a very competent direction here with Sacramento to where I think that pick has a reasonable shot to be like seventh, eighth. And if you're getting like the eighth pick in the 2019 NBA draft, I don't really like this trade for Boston. Also, there's just the nature that the draft lottery isn't super favorable to the teams at the bottom anyway. Right. You know, like even even if they had been and even if they had been like the worst team in the league, like Brooklyn was this year, there was only a 25 percent chance that Boston was going to get the pick that became Markel Fultz in the first yep. place. So even if you do that, so you're you're rolling the dice no matter what, even if the team is bad. So it's kind of a double risk in that way. And I I don't think the Kings are going to be a playoff team at that point, but they're especially. I thought they had a nice draft. That they uh, there's a little bit of kind of a Houston Astros possibility with them, which is the idea that if you're bad enough for long enough, that you can you'll get talent, and that's what Houston's do. Houston's doing right now. They were just so bad for so long in baseball that they got a bunch of these yep. picks, and now those guys are actually good. The that could end up happening for them. the NHL as well. Right. Yeah. So that that happens, and it might be a little early for it to happen in eighteen nineteen, but it doesn't have to be that different to be there. And then the other huge, huge factor, which I also think is in play with the Lakers, is you can never overestimate the importance of being a team that doesn't care about tanking at the end of the year. They still might do it just for the heck of it because, you know, it's the right decision for, like, you think about just various situations. I mean, Eric Bledsoe, well, they they did have a reason to tank, but just various situations, you know, at the very, very end, you don't want your guys to get risk of injury, but you're not going to do it with, like, 20 games out like a lot of the other teams are. You're going to push probably to the last five, and that might be enough to knock them a few spots above where they were going to be, and that's huge. Yeah, no, I could not agree more with you. Uh, It's a very risky decision, I think, for the Celtics, but going back to Fultz now, you know, he's just the perfect fit with Ben Simmons. And I think that in there's a world where Markel Fultz is just like a run of the mill top 20 offensive player in the NBA. Right. Like run of the mill is probably unfair, given the fact that like if you're a top 20 offensive player in the NBA, you're like a borderline all star. But I don't think it's crazy to see like some teams evaluating other players' ceilings higher than Markel Fultz. The problem, for me at least, as to why I have Fultz on a bit of a different plane than everyone else, 
it's basically impossible for me to see how his skill doesn't translate it at least an extremely high level. You know what I mean? Like the fact that I can feel pretty confident in him being a top 20 to top 30 offensive player in the NBA that has ridiculous equity. Even if you think he's not going to get to that, like top seven, top 10 NBA player level. And you think that Jason Tatum can get there. Jason Tatum's downside is way lower than Markel Fultz. Even if you believe in Jason Tatum, the person like I do, it's just really, it's, it's tricky to me to see how anyone else could evaluate, you know, Markel Fultz is not being the number one pick. And also a player of that ilk has so much value, even if it's not to your team. If let's say Markel Fultz and Ben Simmons doesn't work, but Simmons is the guy you want to keep, then you could trade Markel Fultz to a team in two, three years, and they will be happy to have him. It's it's funny. We were I saw um, the city to Evan, uh, the guy that's on Twitter that you know uh, does some pretty good analytic work. I think he's the guy that did uh, NBA Wowie, right? Yes. Yeah, so, Evan Zamir. So yeah. like he he was tweeting earlier about like how oh remember when uh, you know NBA draft analysts, including myself in this by the way, I said the same thing at the time. Uh, we're saying that Jaleel Okafor, even if he ends up not being a uh, useful player for the 76ers, he's the kind of player that will maintain trade value. Um, that kind of put things yeah, into perspective happen. for me a little bit. I was like, oh. Damn, I did that. Shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, f- a fair point, though I think it's different with ones than with other positions, just because the league moved away from Jaleel. It did. Which, which would, it, it can't really ever move away from a one. That's just, it, it's just so central to where things are. The other reason why I really like Markel Fultz, and this is the one part of this that Sixers fans will not like, is that I don't think Ben Simmons is a sure thing. Sure. And so if... Ben Simmons doesn't work. Markel Fultz is so much better of an of a gamble to have than somebody like Jason Tatum. Like Jason Tatum wasn't going to fix that, and they're they don't have many more bites at that apple. So to get a guy who can fit with and then theoretically replace if necessary is perfect. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, the fact that you now have multiple lead ball handlers like uh you know the 76ers do like these two guys are going to mesh really well in tandem in my opinion uh whenever you're considering the way that uh they're going to work in transition, right? Because now you have multiple guys who can bring the ball up the floor, get offense early, get offense quickly and, you know, make the right decision uh, you know, on the break or on the half break. Uh their offense is going to improve by quite a bit this offseason just from that. And it's uh it's something that's certainly worth mentioning whenever you're talking about an offense that really has not been that great in past years. It really hasn't been efficient been enough in past recently. years. Right. Well, and also remember that Fultz and Simmons are going to make Joel Embiid more efficient. Joel Embiid was crazy high in terms of his usage last year. Yep. And, you know, there were moments where that was incredible, but he also turned the ball over way too much because he had the ball in his hands yep. too much. And that's not going to be an issue anymore. They can put him, you know, it might be an adjustment for him just because there are two guys that are going to not only want the ball probably more than he does, but be better with it. But I think they'll figure it out. I think they'll figure it out, too. And I mean, like you said, we just kind of went this entire time talking without Joel Embiid, like being the, you know, number one guy that matters most here. And he very clearly is like their franchise player, right? He's so very clearly and unbelievable, un- not unprecedented talent, but, you know, kind of an unprecedented talent. Cause I feel like we haven't had 
such a good post presence potentially that can also step out and shoot threes? Do you think that's fair? Well, and and his defensive potential. Right. I mean, the the Sixers were one of the better defensive teams in the league when he was on the floor last year. And other than Robert Covington, their defensive talent for most of last year was not spectacular. I mean, there were guys that worked hard. You know, Brett Brown has done a nice job with that. But that you were not sitting there going, oh, yeah, of course, they're a great defensive team, especially considering his minutes didn't really overlap with New Orleans Noel's minutes. Yep. No, that's 100 percent. Uh 100% right. And, uh, you know, that mix of floor spacing, rim protection, incredible post presence, efficient offensive weapon, pretty decent passer as well. Like not, I w- that was what I was surprised by most. Like he showed a little bit of vision in college, but I didn't remember him being able to like throw cross court passes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I, I thought that his post play was actually a little worse than I thought it was going to be just because I was so impressed by him in some of those moments at Kansas. But the passing more than made up for it. And then the, his ability to actually shoot, like one of the few things he could work on during his recovery, the fact that he was so comfortable was unbelievable. Yeah, no, it, it really, really is. Uh, he's, uh, <laughs> like I said, kind of an unprecedented talent. And I don't mean that to say that he is going to be the best player ever by unprecedented, but I just mean it in terms of like style of play at that level. I can't really remember anyone like him if he stays healthy. Unique is usually a good thing, but it's not uniformly a good thing. I think of that to a point also with Kyrie. You know, like Kyrie is a special, special player, but if he weren't with LeBron, he would be different. And I think he would be more frustrating to some people. He's still unbelievable. He's one of the best just get a bucket guys I've ever seen. But it would be different if he had the responsibility of running an offense. And based on the last week's events, it's very possible we're going to see that in the next couple of years. (laughs) Yeah. And that actually ties in with the number two team with Lonzo Ball and Lakers. The way that I have thought about this team changed more in the last seven days than I ever thought it would. And the reason is that Cleveland now looks, they look, they look like they're in turmoil a little bit, not because of the players. The players are still great, but because, you know, they're Dan Gilbert is still Dan Gilbert. I, you know, he doesn't value front office people. And you kind of started, you've, I had heard murmurs about the LeBron stuff for a while. And it's not definite, of course. It's far, far, far from that. But what I caught myself doing, and we've talked about Lonzo so much over the course of the last two years, that what I started thinking about was a very specific idea, which was in 2018-19, a a starting four, so you'd have a warm body at center, of Lonzo, Paul George, LeBron, and Brandon Ingram, and just went... That's that's like a, a new age a new age NBA. team. And by the way, yeah. can LeBron be that warm body at center? <laughs> I don't think he wants to be. I think they would do the equivalent of a Zaza Pachulia or somebody like that, at least in the regular season. But in the playoffs, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, he'll be LeBron will be for most of that season. He'll be thirty four. So at that point, who knows? Maybe the maybe his parts will have rusted a little bit. Who oh knows? no! Like I said, what I I think like. In game four of the playoffs, like when he's like 36 or 37, if he wants to play that long, LeBron James is going to be the all NBA first team center if he wants to be. Well, like, and remember, there was this, there was this thing years ago about how it was like, oh, you know, like when LeBron ages, he's already like when he was 25, he was built like Carl Malone. Yeah. Like that's just what he was. And then the league made now Carl Malone would be a yeah. center. So it's just it's just unbelievable how that has happened. Yeah, no, he, he is a large human. Uh, there's not really another way to put it. And he can protect the rim. He can do everything that a center needs to do because he's LeBron goddamn James and can do everything. But like 
those four, right, because you have LeBron and Lonzo, you can literally get any other player type because they're all so big and so long and play with those four guys. You can get a floor spacing shooter. Sure, that makes sense. You can get a true center. Okay, that makes sense. You can get like a super athletic Andre Iguodala like wing. Okay, that makes sense. Like everything about that foursome uh, just makes me so excited to watch basketball in 2018 if it happens. And whoever that person is, they better be ready to run because you could have the best or second best fast break team in the league. And you could have the two two of the best fast break teams of all time, along with the Showtime Lakers, the, the LeBron Heat and a few other teams playing not only in the same conference, but in the same division. Oh, yeah, would be outrageous and insane. And just totally ridiculous. And I would love every minute of it. Um, I, I genuinely, not only because I live out in Los Angeles and hey, LeBron James is really fun to watch play regularly, but like, I really just want this to happen from a thought experiment perspective, right? Like, it would just be so, so fun. And if they could, if they could find a way to keep Julius Randle there too, if he can learn to shoot a little bit, which it seems like he's really working on this offseason, I love that fit too. Like, everything, Everything that the Lakers are building here makes sense to me other than dealing D'Angelo Russell for what they did, I guess. I didn't really understand, and we can kind of transition to that now, I guess, but like, I didn't understand why this decision had to be made now. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't... I do. Well, so there are two, there are two parts of it that are weird. One is trading Mozgov before you have right. to, because... Getting it basically, they paid to get off an extra year of his contract, which they didn't really need to do. And the second part of it is the Brook Lopez part. So Brook Lopez, wonderful player. The Lakers don't have their pick next year, so it doesn't have that sort of downside. But he's talent. Presumably, he was a part of the reason that they gave up D'Angelo in the trade. I don't think he was a throw-in. And the present value, Matt doesn't just doesn't matter that. Much. Not at all, because they're not gonna. Like, yeah, they'll keep his cap hold on their books until, you know, they sign someone else. But, like, realistically, they didn't, like, acquire him to acquire his bird rights either. They just acquired him to make salaries match, kind of, because he was a contract that matched with what they're looking for to do in the future. I'll be interested to see how they handle that situation this year. If he got moved before the season, I would not be surprised. If he got moved midseason, I would not be surprised. I will be somewhat surprised if he's a Laker by the end of the year. Just because it doesn't make sense. Like you're not like you just, then you just let him go and say thank you for contributing in a year that we weren't really competing for anything. Like it, it's it's a, it's such a strange dynamic that he goes from the Nets who have been functionally irrelevant for the last couple of years to the Lakers where even the most ardent Lakers fans are going to be watching a of players that are not him and b what looking beyond that season. Yeah, so like there's no way that they acquired Brook Lopez for the value that Brook Lopez provides for them on the offensive end this season, right? They acquired him, I think, because he is an expiring contract, first and foremost, but also because he is a trade asset for them down the road. And if they end up getting a first round pick out of this again, that's like somewhat unprotected. It'll obviously be protected somehow, but like relatively unprotected by first round pick standards. Then I think that this makes more sense. But like I said earlier, like I believe D'Angelo Russell is going to be a star in this league and I'm not giving him away just to dump Tim Mozgov's contract before I have to dump Tim Mozgov's contract. 
And they don't, there aren't that many guys in the 2018 class that are worth it, that you need to pre-dump it just in case. Like, I think that in today's world, we know that if you need to get out of a contract, you can. There are a lot of examples of this. And it's going to be easier to do so when Dang and and Timofey Mozgov and those guys have two years left than when they have three. So it's it's surprising in that yep. way. But at the same point, you know, like they did get back a late first round pick. They got back. They got back Brooke. And if they didn't feel that D'Angelo was a part of that, I think they sold a little bit low on him. But I don't think they sold like appallingly low on him if they were looking into the future and saying, well, we plan on drafting Lonzo and D'Angelo is going to be kind of marginalized by that to a, to a degree. And maybe you kind of want to marginalize him if they were going to keep him because you want Lonzo to build the confidence and the experience and all that. Well, I don't. So maybe they. I don't know if it necessarily marginalizes him, to be honest, with the way Lonzo plays. Like, Lonzo is such a good facilitator for everyone else. He's going to get everyone else paid. He's going to get everyone else's value up. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think you're right, but I think maybe they saw some sort of downside risk that if he, you know, if, if Lonzo really takes over that role and that, that if, if he he kind of gets to be a forgotten guy, kind of like the guy taken immediately after him, Julio Okafor, I don't think that would have happened, but I can see them getting a little bit scared. But still, I mean, it, it, it just seemed premature to me to, to make that decision. Like, that was always a possibility, but I don't think it was likely enough to say, oh, we have to mitigate that risk. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I don't really, uh, like, I, I didn't hate the trade from Los Angeles' perspective because I at least saw a coherent vision. Like, with the Dwight Howard trade, I saw absolutely zero coherent vision from Atlanta, right? So Atlanta moves down in the draft, takes on longer-term salary, and doesn't even really save themselves all that much long-term money to trade Dwight Howard. That made like negative sense to me in every way. Yeah, there were there wasn't for me that they trade. Would have been better the off ones that him. bother the ones that the ones that bother me the most are the ones that do not have a cogent rationale. Yeah. As you as you said, like so for that trade, Miles Plumley. Like so, there were people online like because I trashed that trade, and they're like, "Oh, Dwight Howard, he's he sucks, he's a scrub or whatever." It'd be like, "Have you watched Miles Plumley? You 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 say these bad things about Dwight Howard now? Miles Plumley was a net negative last year and is paid longer and has never been anywhere near as good. So it's not even like it's a reclamation project. There's nothing to reclaim here, and yeah. so. It's just it's just a a, a really frustrating circumstance so there, like, my, and I also got bad on, at the framing. Yeah, my guess on the vision between with this is is like they wanted to cut Dwight's contract up into smaller pieces to try and move it down the road. Do you think that? Presumably. Yeah, like that's that's my guess. I, I think that well, I think that's part of it. But the other insane element of this is that if you feel like I do that Paul Millsap is not coming back there, what is the point of cutting your salary this year? Yeah. Like they could have just, if they, you know, if they were really, really saying like under no circumstances is Dwight Howard going to be on our roster next year, they could have waited until September, cut him then, eaten that whole 20 million for this year. And then the amount that they would have stretched would have been less than, would have been less than Miles Plumley. They don't have to move down in the draft then. And they don't, you know, like, and, and I think they have a better shot. Like if that's, if that's really, really what they wanted to do, they could have. And I also think that would have been a poor use of resources. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Not, not, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. With the Lakers thing, I understood what they were going for. I think that they want to acquire sure. multiple first-round picks for D'Angelo Russell while cutting salary and creating two, two max cap spots next offseason. 
Okay, that makes sense. You're the Los Angeles Lakers. You are a premier organization. We can assume that they, under Magic Johnson, will probably be able to lure free agents. Is what it is. I get it. I don't agree with it. I think it was impatient and impetuous and probably not the right decision, but I get why they did it. Other trades, like we'll get to Jimmy Butler, I'm sure at some point, uh, not not so much. Not so much with that. The Lakers trade at least made sense. Yeah, let's let's move a little bit through. Yeah. Uh, we already talked about Tatum. I don't think we need to. Josh Jackson, you like him more than I do. Really? But I, th- I think so. Well, where did you Three. have him? Yeah, I had him like six. Okay, interesting. Who did you have ahead of well, him? Well, the, the, lo- the, the logic being, oh, I had uh, basically all four point guards. Okay. So De'Aaron and, and Dennis Smith. Dennis Smith on ceiling. I, I expected value. I think those guys could be somewhat no, close. No, I had Dennis Smith I ahead could. of De'Aaron Fox on my board. So I get that. How did you have Josh Jackson ahead of De'Aaron Fox? Or De'Aaron Fox ahead of Josh Jackson? Because to me, if... I think that a lot Josh Jackson has these escalating negatives if he can't shoot. Like if his jump shot isn't fixable, I don't think his ball handling matters as much. And I also don't think that when I've so I've watched him for for a long time right. now. And I think and I thought that you liked him before actually. I did yeah. like him. I I started liking some of the other guys better. Right. I yeah, earlier in this process I had him where you did. But what happened was I started thinking about it and you you really get into guys like Ben Simmons or you think about the way the Warriors do it and his ability to handle in transition that only to me that matter that's it's it's an added benefit but it matters more if he gets defensive rebounds or if he's like the best or second best like decision maker ball handler on the team. No, normally I think he's going to be worse than the point guard. And I don't think he's going to grab too many defensive rebounds because he's probably a three and a, a three slash two. Hmm. So okay. I, I think I think that it's possible. And this is actually the same beef I have with Jason Tatum, that they're skilled in a way that isn't necessarily useful for an NBA team. It's good to have, but you need to have other stuff on top of it. It's kind of in a way I'm trying to think of the right parallel here. There are other guys like this. Um, like, I feel like some of Anthony Davis's ability in this way gets underutilized, but that also might just be the way that they play where, you know, they can do these other things, but it's just not really the way an NBA team works. I I think that you're rating Josh Jackson's, uh, ability to grab defensive rebounds a little bit lower than I am and his like ball handling ability a little bit lower than I am. But I, I get it at least. That could yeah. be true. Yeah, and, and like with Jackson, I could totally see him being one of those guys. I saw it originally. He's just it's crazy. just crazy. Like he's just a crazy person yeah. and he's going to like he's going to make plays because that's who he is, you know? Like he reacts to everything on the basketball floor so quickly. Like he, he gets to every loose ball before everyone else and he gets to every, he gets to everything before everyone else because not only is he an elite athlete, but he's at least He's also elite in transition. He's elite in uh, reading, reacting to what's happening on the basketball floor. Yeah. So, so here's what I'll say about Josh. Also, I am very open to the possibility, maybe even likelihood, that after three games in summer league, I'm going to go, oh crap, yep. and just see see exactly and see exactly what was there, why I was high on him early, and just being like, okay, it's going to translate. I don't need to worry about this anymore. Like there are guys like that. And there are guys the other way where you say, like, I think there were moments where I thought this way with his now teammate, Dragon Bender, who I really liked, where I went, oh, maybe he's not going to be able to do all that stuff I thought he was going to. And, and, you know, there's still time for them to figure that these guys are incredibly young. Every single good player in the NBA gets a lot better from where they are at this point in their career to 
where they end up so like that they can do it but josh is is fascinating in that way but i think he's in a in, in kind of a good spot because they can he can the team can take some of his personality if they want to i still don't know what the heck they're doing at point guard because eric bledsoe is just not really on their timeline i think he's a good player I, if that's the team they roll out is bledsoe booker josh whichever power forward they like the best and whichever center they like the best like that's not horrendous no. like that's not a bad thing like, I, I like the Suns a little bit this year, and then things fell apart on them. And, you know, if they're going to do that, it just doesn't really make much sense in terms of where Bledsoe yeah, is. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. What I will say is Josh Jackson at Summer League is going to be outrageous. He is 100% going to make you go, oh, crap. But I don't know how useful it's going to be, you know, because, like, Summer League is kind of basketball. It's not not really. But like, well, and, and, they're, and the wings generally are one of the other weak points of it. You know, it's like, well, I mean, depending on if the, the ones that they get the older wings sometimes those guys can cause problems for the youngsters but you know if it's the fringe guys that didn't get drafted that are trying to do like josh jackson's going to clown those guys that's he it's going to be so damn good at summer league he's like he is going to be like okay this is my first impression in the nba i want to tear this dude across from me's heart out the entire time this dude craziest craziest competitor it's like him it's in the 2018 draft colin sexton um oh yeah sexton's super yeah. intense like there there are a few others that i can think of like off the top of my head but like this draymond draymond is that way too yeah like he's gonna look across from who is over like next to him and i feel bad for who it's gonna be like who i don't know who the summer who the suns play the first game in summer league but i feel bad for that team because josh is gonna wreck them i'm looking it up just for fun oh my god it's it's gonna be ridiculous it's gonna be absolutely ridiculous Phoenix versus Sacramento, so probably Justin Jackson. Ah, Justin's at least older, but yeah, I mean, it's not going to end well. <laughs> I mean, if if Buddy plays too, Buddy can get like that. Like if if Josh like runs up against Buddy and well, and De'Aaron Fox will be in that game. Oh man, Tyler Tyler Eulis will probably be in that game. That's going to be that awesome. is a that is the most summer league game. That is that on the seventh. That's on the seventh. It's it's the seven thirty game. It's going to be on ESPN two. It's going to be oh man, that's going to be so. That's going to be the best game of summer league. Well, and it's going to be right after Clippers Lakers, so the crowd's going to be hot. Oh yeah, no, that's going to be the best game of summer league, unquestionably. After Jawan Evans. Well, no, no, the best game of summer league is going to be the first game of Utah summer league because it's Sixers Celtics. Yeah, that'll be good too. Because that that's the one I'm most excited. I'm I'm pumped that I'm going to Utah summer league for the first time. For many reasons, but that game is a big part of it. Because I'll, I'll get to kind of see what kind of what kind of dog Markel Fultz has in him too. Yeah. Because if it were me, that's the type of game that I would get. Yeah, up for. I think you will. To be honest, this will be fun. Before we move on, I want to take a moment to tell you about Blue Apron. Blue Apron is a service that I had been familiar with before I they became a sponsor. Actually, I dunked on first, and then here. And I absolutely fell in love with the service. It is amazing. High quality food delivered right to your door with excellent instructions in perfect proportions with no food waste. I look forward to it all the time now. It's actually hurting me a little bit that I looked at the menu items for when I'm going to be in Utah for Summer League and some really good stuff, a potato crusted catfish and then a pizza. And the pizza is actually the way that they do it has completely changed the way that I cook pizza. I'm making my own and all that, which I do really enjoy doing. And so it's tough to to see that on there and it's kind of like taunting you like, oh, you don't get to try this. But that's how good Blue Apron is, is that it makes me miss being home so I, that I can cook and, and more importantly, eat it. And 
it doesn't really matter what you like. Blue Apron has amazing options for so many different preferences. And I really think of it as a nice way to push your boundaries, whether that is as an eater, as a chef, or both. And you can go to blueapron.com slash realgm and you can get up to three meals for free, including free shipping. And if you do that, and I definitely think you should if you haven't already, challenge yourself. Try things that you that you wouldn't normally do. And for me, that has really been in the seafood realm. I mentioned the potato-crusted catfish in a week or two. And I'm not the biggest seafood fan, normally speaking, but they do an amazing job in terms of the quality of the seafood and also the the cooking preparing instructions and the spicing and all that is fantastic. So I've gotten more into cooking it. I've gotten more into eating it and I can thank Blue Apron for that. And it has expanded, it has expanded my world in terms of culinary exploits. And I, I really am impressed by that and thankful for that. And it all follows the guidelines for the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, which is awesome as well. So again, blueapron.com slash real GM. Now back to Sam. But going back to Josh Jackson, just generally kind of, he's a perfect fit next to Devin Booker. Like he's going to run in transition. He's going to be able to handle the ball in transition. He's going to be able to find Devin Booker spotting up. He's going to take on the toughest defensive assignments and make sure that Booker doesn't have to expend too much energy there long term. I think that he's probably the best fit out of any player in this draft for his team. Like, I, I know that we just went on talking about like Markel Fultz being an important fit to find, but there are still ways that like that could go wrong as we kind of talked about, right? I cannot see a circumstance where Phoenix with Devin Booker and Josh Jackson on the wing goes wrong. Interesting. So that That's more definitive than me, but I could definitely see it working out. We've mentioned De'Aaron Fox a couple of different times. I, I think he makes a lot of sense for Sacramento. I liked Dennis Smith better, sure. as I think you did I too. Did. But he's he's a model citizen. He it doesn't have some of the downside risk there. And I think that Fox has underappreciated physical potential. He doesn't have he's not the athlete that Dennis Smith is because almost nobody who has played in the NBA in the last ten years is. But Fox fits a lot of that stuff and also I think I underrate him a little bit sometimes because I don't love his vision, but yeah. I think it could get good enough yeah. where he can create separation and it works. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that Kentucky's spacing this year probably made his vision understated a little bit. Like he had Isaiah Briscoe next to him. He had Bam Adebayo next to him. Wenyan Gabriel. Gabriel, like a lot of guys that couldn't really shoot. Um, you know, Dominique Hawkins as well, you know, he, I think he's going to be a fine passer. I don't think he's going to like lead the league in assists, but kind of like Mike Conley, right? Like Mike Conley has turned into a good passer, not like an elite passer, but a good passer. Conley's a really interesting comp for Fox. Yeah. They're both like hyper quick. Uh, they both came in with, you know, very questionable jump shots. Uh, both super, super elite character. Uh, yeah, I think they actually are very, very comparable in terms of the way they're going to affect NBA games, both very, very good at the point of attack defensively, but also still have size based questions that occasionally get them into trouble. Right. Like it's it's scary how much their games are alike to me. And I loved Conley. So that that kind of makes sense. And with Fox. Uh, yeah. Again, it could be that just the sample we got, because I also remember that, it, it, again, it's unfair comparison. The guy. So I when we walked in because we were sitting next to each other for part of it in the 2016 Hoop Summit, you knew those guys a lot better than I did. The guy who popped to me was Fultz. And I went, oh, my God, like this is the this is the guy of this group. And De'Aaron Fox was pretty much going against Markel Fultz in practices. And it's kind of like, 
you're just going to look bad going next to Markel Fultz because he's he's special off the bounce. And Fox did a nice job getting into him. I thought he did. He created offense for his units whenever they were. They didn't scrimmage very much, but whenever they did scrimmage. But it might be that he has all of these circumstances that I'm just a little are just imperfect in a way that some point guards. I mean, Dennis Smith has this too, but the point guards just don't. They, they don't get all these samples out there to really work. Yeah. No. Absolutely. You know, college point guards. On some level, they are more capable of making things happen than any other position in college hoops. But on the other hand, in terms of their vision and in terms of their, you know, assist numbers or whatever, they are very beholden to guys who often are just on a very different plane from them in terms of talent. And I think you can even say that about Kentucky, who had more talent than basically anybody in the NBA or in college basketball last season, given that they had three lottery picks on their team. So like and you saw how comfortable he looked when they played Willis or some of the other guys that could shoot. It was like, oh, my God, I have somebody I can pass to. Look at that. Right. Exactly. And, you know, uh, another part of this draft for Sacramento that I think is really incredibly important. You know, we, we talked about them being this dysfunctional franchise for a long time and they're not dysfunctional really anymore. And in fact, they drafted three character kids in the first round and De'Aaron Fox, Justin Jackson and Harry Giles that, you know, everyone likes. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, that's, that's an understatement. They're all very high level, high character kids. Then they also get Frank Mason, who is, essentially the prototypical point guard uh, that you want off your bench because he is a crazy person that will like just fight and dog and claw and, you know, scratch his way to an NBA career. And, you know, like that's perfect. That's exactly what I think this organization needed. You mix them with Scalabissier, who is just like the nicest kid you'll ever meet. And Buddy Heald, who is just elite, high, high, high quality in terms of character. Um, It's, it's a really nice departure from the way that the Kings have built in the past. And I think that it can't go unnoticed, right? They, they now have a lot of guys who are high level competitors that are also very, very high character. Well, and Giles is high character. Yeah, too, that's right? what I said. Uh, you know, Giles was oh, one yeah. of the three that I mentioned. Um, oh, yeah, yeah we kind of we kind of talked a little bit off air about the Giles pick. If I was if I was the Kings, you know, we can kind of fast forward to 10, right? Like and talk about them within the, the context yeah, sure. of De'Aaron Fox. Um, I would have just taken Malik Monk and been happy. Uh, I, I think that they got good value getting Justin Jackson and Harry Giles. I don't really think that, uh, you know, think that it's a disaster. You know, I, I think uh, if they could, if they would have taken OG at 20 would have been a pretty unbelievable draft. Yeah, no, for sure. Like they could have taken different players. They could have taken Shemi Ojale. They could have taken I'm trying to think like Derek White. I would have liked uh, like they, they, they could have taken a lot of different guys. Right. With Giles, you know, I've gotten mixed stuff on the injury. Uh, some teams definitely had him off the board. Some teams, you know, I, I guess had him flagged okay you know green flagged saying take them given the fact that the kings took them but you know we'll see i hope the best for him i i really do but ultimately if you're telling me i could have malik monk or i could have justin jackson or and harry giles i'm gonna take malik monk and just be like 
all right, I'm taking this guy that I know is going to get buckets. I don't care that I have Buddy Heald already. Uh, you know, De'Aaron Fox will be very happy that we take Malik Monk. They're really good friends. Uh, I'm sure that Buddy Heald will enjoy having the uh, having the spotlight taken off of him in terms of, terms of having to shoot the basketball. And I'm just taking that guy and being happy. Uh, he is he's an awesome awesome player off the ball. Well, and what's so funny is that like Kevin Pelton, who of course whose opinion I respect a lot. He talked about how, generally speaking, teams that trade up in these circumstances, they they hemorrhage value. Like you, you could think back to Nurkic and Gary Harris for Doug McDermott, or um, the it was uh, Gorgie Jang and Shabazz Muhammad for Trey yeah. Burke. Like those sorts of deals. And his idea was that Zach Collins was good enough to to potentially make that work. Sure, I sort of agree with that. Like I think this could have been a trade that worked for both teams, depending on yeah. how it how it worked out. But I, I I do wish that maybe that they got. I also am not in love with Justin Jackson. When I saw him in person, I didn't. But that was also before he really rose. He didn't. He didn't pop to me. He just looked like he looked like a guy who I thought could maybe get into the league. But I didn't think, oh my god, this guy's like a mid first rounder. Like when I saw him then, he did have a better year at North Carolina, and he deserves credit for that and working on improving himself. But the, you have all that in there, and so like. It, it, I, I'm kind of conflicted with the Kings in that way because I think that this could work, and if it does, like it definitely signals a new direction for them. But they also now, I think that there is more pressure than some people are, are un- admitting to really get star potential with what the, the pieces they have left because I think they got a lot of nice, more complimentary yeah. guys, and they're going to need to hit. And that's the same criticism in some ways that I had with John Isaac at six. I love John Isaac. John Isaac was one of my favorite players in this draft. But it's going to be really hard for them now to get that straw that stirs the drink guard. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, This is part of the reason I was a big fan of Philadelphia trading up to one. If you look at the 2018 draft and the 2019 draft, that big time guard isn't really there. Like Colin Sexton. So I released my 2018 big board at Sporting News uh, on Friday, the day that we're recording this podcast. And I have Colin Sexton at seven on my board. I would have him lower than all of the four college point guards in this class. Uh, I, I would have him, uh, I'm trying to think, like I would have him higher than Chris Dunn, but like going backwards and like continuing going back, like he's not like some hyper elite point guard prospect. You know, I think he's a good point guard prospect and I love the competitor in him, but there are some very real concerns about Sexton, right? So like this was kind of for me, and I'm sorry, the 2019 point guard class is for me considerably weaker on NBA potential. It's uh, very deep. There are like 10 guys kind of vying for that number one spot. But Trey Jones, Tyus Jones's brother, is the best that I've seen so far. And he doesn't really scream NBA player to me. Like he'll play in the NBA, but like I mean, like in terms of starting quality NBA player, doesn't really scream it to me. So this was Philly's one chance, I think, to get a really true high-level point guard, distributor, you know, scorer, difference maker, essentially. With the Magic, I think that's totally right. And, you know, Dennis Smith was sitting there on the board for them, and he might have been entering a non-ideal situation in Orlando, given the turnover that there's been there, given the roster issues that exist there. And with Dennis, I think you want to keep him very insulated in a positive situation. But at the same time, he's just the highest upside guy left on the board there for me as a guard, and I just take him. Like, I'm happy to take him. Yeah, Nate focused a lot on how happy he was that the Knicks didn't take him 
partially because their situation is just a disaster right now. Yeah. In some ways, I was for the Kings, too, just because that support structure doesn't really seem to be there. They have a lot of good kids now, but just they haven't built the culture yet. And so I was so thrilled, even though I'm mad at almost every team between here and there. But I'm so thrilled that he ended up in Dallas. Oh, he's going to be awesome there. Uh, he, he is going to be unbelievable there in Dallas. It's going to be so fun. I, I also believe he's going to straight up murder every single point guard that was taken above him in Summer League. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah, I can see that. That's totally possible. I, I, I think he has certain chips on his shoulder from what I've seen. And that like the, he'll he'll remember he'll remember like De'Aaron Fox. He'll remember the I think the one that's gonna be there is I don't know if Dallas is playing New York in any summer league games. Yeah. But I think he'll try to go at Frank just for for that feeling of like, hey, this Belgian French kid oh, yeah. got picked over me. Got picked over me. I want to. I want. I want to dunk on his face. Oh, 100 percent. He and, would go right at Frank. Frank, for his part, is a really good defender, and I think that you know is. that would be a really fun matchup. But yo, yeah, Dennis would try and attack him every single time down the floor. That's that's the thing about like you know Dennis Smith, De'Aaron Fox, Josh Jackson, uh, Lonzo, kind of too. He can get this way. Uh, they're all crazy competitors. Uh, they, they all just like have that dog where they really, really, uh, you know, want to go at dudes that think that have slighted them in some way. It's really fun. Uh, Dennis Smith is going to be awesome in Dallas. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, they now have an awesome mix of like floor spacing with Wes Matthews and Seth Curry and even like Harrison Barnes a little bit. Like he's still a capable three point shooter that you have to get out on. And they have these pick and roll weapons with Dirk and uh, Nerland's Noel. He is going to murder there. He is going to destroy people. So I looked it up and, and Dallas's first game in Vegas summer league, they are playing in Orlando. Oh my God. I just looked up who their first game is against in Orlando. Is it the Knicks? Yep. Oh no. Oh my God. That's going to be that. That it's on July 1st. I'm going to be so dead tired. It's at three Eastern on July 1st. I'm going to make sure I'm awake for that oh, game. No, Frank. but his first game, his first game in Vegas is against Chris Dunn and the bulls. Yeah. Eh, he might, he might decide to go crazy. Chris Dunn. No, I think Chris, I think Chris Dunn's going to go crazy. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe. I mean, is he going to be as a defender? Yeah. I was going to say like Chris Dunn yeah. is going to cause him some issues. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Dunn. So, yeah, now's as good a time as any to talk about that. So, my, my, my big issue. Actually, you know, screw it. I, you've, I've talked about this trade a couple of times. I'm going to give you the first words on this trade. Can, hold on. I, I just want to read this quote real quick before I give words on this trade. Uh, D'Angelo Russell is an excellent player. He has the talent to be an all star. We want to thank him for what he did for us. But what I needed was a leader. I needed somebody that can make the other players better and also somebody that players want to play with. Magic Johnson on D'Angelo Russell. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Like, this isn't stuff that's new, right? Like, this isn't stuff that, like, people didn't know about D'Angelo Russell. Like, behind closed doors, people say this stuff. But, like, whoo, that's a, that's a spicy one. Wow, that's that's intense. But let's, but let's yeah, talk right, so yeah. Another player who has a decidedly who has a decided reputation, not in the same way as D'Angelo, though. But yeah, you know, Jimmy can be a handful, I guess, uh, from people that have dealt with him. So yeah, also part of that just might be Chicago's front office being a total train wreck. But I digress. So when this trade was announced, it was announced as Chris Dunn, Zach Levine, and number seven for Jimmy Butler. When it was announced like that, did you think that that was a fine trade? 
No, I thought that was a bad trade for the Bulls. So I thought that it was probably a slight underpay, but I also didn't know what people expected them to get. You know what I mean? Like, it's very difficult to trade a star in today's NBA. And to get, you know, I think Chicago is probably overvaluing Chris Dunn. Uh, thinking that, you know, this guy last year was a fifth overall lottery pick that we had a really high grade on on draft day. Um, what we've seen from Chris Dunn in the NBA so far does not really uh, make for that being an effective evaluation. But he's going to be a good role player in the NBA. He's too damn good defensively to not have like a 10-year career in the NBA. You know what I mean? Zach Levine, before the ACL injury, really was kind of taking a leap toward being a very real starting caliber shooting guard in the NBA that could eventually be a top 10 shooting guard in the NBA. And the number seven overall pick, I mean, that's, you know, they use it on Lowry Markinen, who I think is a really good selection for them. He has legitimate all-star potential as a shooting center in today's NBA at a time where floor spacing is more valued than basically anything else offensively. I don't know what people expected. The problem is, is that they gave back pick 16. So they essentially just made it a pick swap where they moved up seven or nine spots. That's really dumb. You know, like you're only, if you can get both assets, then that is an incredible boon to your organization. If they could have entered or exited this draft with Zach Levine, Lowry Markinen, Chris Dunn, and who do I have on my board here that's right in front of me? John Collins. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. I get that trade. Adding the 16th pick is a significant problem to me. It significantly tilts the trade in the Bulls' favor, or in, I'm sorry, not in the Bulls' favor, in the Timberwolves' favor, given the fact that they're getting back a top 12-ish player in the NBA. But I guess I just didn't know what people expected the Bulls to get for a Jimmy Butler trade. My biggest issue with this is the idea of... of- of ceiling value. So Levine, certainly a physically talented guy. I'm a little bit lower on the, the, what he had shown during the season, a talented score, but not necessarily an efficient score. Still pretty bad defensively, not as abysmal as he was early. He averaged like 19 points a game on a 58 true shooting percentage this year. Like that's pretty good. (laughs) It's not bad, but I but I think like the other problem with him is he's about to get properly paid. Right, that's a huge and problem with acquiring Zach Levine in this thing. It, it makes it really difficult for you to have cap space going forward. And Chicago, a team that I think you know, if they were properly run, would have a reasonable <laughs> pitch there. And then Chris Dunn, to me, a talent. And I thought, you know, I there were times when in his time at Providence that I thought, oh, this guy could really be a player. But then I worry about him offensively and just. At the point guard spot, offense is just so much more important than defense. And the idea of like, can you, can he be a a, a meaningful positive on that end consistently is is a real concern for me. And so I thought that it's better to take one bite, you know, like one big bite, kind of like the D'Angelo Russell equivalent. Take one big bite with a guy who has some real potential than like a bunch of kind of menial ones. That's just the way that I feel about it. So if you're if you're running the Bulls, would you rather have Kevin Love or this? Oof, that's hard because I, I don't think Kevin Love is providing much present value. I'm trying to think about what you could get for Kevin Love in a right, trade. Right, that, that's kind of the, the question. Answer, the answer appears to be not much. So, so like, 
I, I would think, imagine I think that I, was like kind of the equivalent offer from Cleveland, right? Like maybe Kevin Love and like, I, and that ties in with that. I think in some ways, who I'm most mad with is everybody else. That if this was like one of the better things that was on the table for them, considering uh, Zach Lowe had it in his piece that Boston basically wasn't offering any of their best stuff; they were offering some other things. It, it feels like the market for 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 Jimmy was about what the market, what I thought it was going to be for Paul George and Jimmy Butler's combination of player plus contract is way better than Paul George's. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's so for the Celtics, like Paul George is a considerably better fit, but Jimmy has a little bit more value because he has the longer contract, right? Like he has two years, whereas Paul has one. Um, the fit though makes sense for Paul because Paul can, you know, I know he doesn't want to play the four, but he's going to have to play the four. Basically, wherever he goes, it's well, point. and it also makes sense just because Jimmy is more ball dominant yep. in, in a lot of ways. Now, I mean, I think Paul George would love to be as ball dominant as Butler was for the Bulls last year. It just wasn't allowed because his team had all of these guys that were ball dominant. Right. But, but I think in many ways, Paul George doesn't make sense for the Celtics unless they're going to re- unless they have kind of like a an understanding, whether that is written or under- otherwise to resign him because they don't need a they don't need a rental unless the cost is just so low. Yeah, I think that ultimately that's the thing. Like, is the cost going to be basically what Zach articulated in his thing today? Like, is it going to be relatively low? Um would you rather have, well, here's a, here's another good question. Are you so low on this Chicago package that you would rather have Julius Randall 27 and 28? No, I would rather have, I would rather have this package, but I would rather have just waited on Paul George and seen what happened than either of those. Even if you end up getting almost nothing, I still, because. And you can especially Butler, do that in Jimmy Butler with teams who miss out in free agency. Right. And also because even if you trade him at the deadline, you're getting two playoffs out of him. That's a lot. You know, like that. There's a very real value to that. Yeah. No, absolutely. There was time still with Jimmy Butler, whereas with Paul, there's really not time. Like he had to be traded. And it's funny that the one that there was time with was the one that was traded. Um, I certainly think that like this is a like if I was grading this trade, I would probably give it like a D. Like I'm not saying that this was a smart trade for Chicago. Giving back the 16th pick and not getting that extra pick asset is crazy pants stupid to me. Well, and not getting even like an afterthought, like a future second or something, just to just to get. I mean, it's this trade was not so tight on the margin that you couldn't have asked for anything By else. By the way, the funniest part of all of this is uh, Tibbs today said, like, if we didn't get the 16th pick back, we would not have accepted it. Yeah, Glenn, I think Glenn Taylor said that. Oh, I'm it was sorry. somebody Maybe like it was that? Glenn Taylor. Which is hilarious. It's like you know, this was a really good trade for you either way, yeah. and. And and so now I, I, let's take a second to talk about what this does to the Minnesota Timberwolves because the Wolves now they have a ceiling like they're a team now that can get places and so I, I talked I, I tweeted this out because I was fiddling around with 2K which is something I do when I try to visualize rosters mm-hmm. and I was trying out Butler Wiggins Towns and all that kind of stuff and it was just like you're just kind of sitting there going oh, I can do stuff and the, the series that I thought was the most fun that I played around with was them versus the current Jazz who knows if we're going to see the current Jazz next year but that's sort of an idea and it's just like they have a lot of talent on the wing. They can slide all these guys like Wiggins kind of down on the totem pole a little bit, which I think is very good for him. And there are challenges that they're going to have to do to build around this, but I see how this can work. So if I'm them, I go out and offer JJ Redick $20 million a year for three years, probably. Um, and I might even be willing to guarantee the third year. Uh, and if it, I would probably try and go like 22 
without guaranteeing the third year. But if he wants the guaranteed third year, I'd be like, okay, let's go like 20. You know, and obviously this is a negotiation that I'm kind of having with myself in my own head. But like, to me, that seems like a reasonable price for JJ, right? Yeah, I'm I'm somewhat okay with that. I would actually because just because I don't think Tibbs is going to play Jimmy or Wiggins at the four, I would actually the guy I'd be going after unless they really love one of the point guards and they can get a certain guy is Paul Millsap. Yeah, I kind of because I what Millsap out because Zach Lowe said that he's out of their price range. Well, I'm not sure he's out of their price range because I think their price range might change. I think they can move a lot of their stuff if they need to. And just imagine like what they can do if they if they if they can actually get Millsap and Towns as their four five. Oh, terrifying. All those issues all those issues about like the extra extraneous centers, we're talking about money spent, not we're not talking about playing time. So like this is another reason that the Gorgie Jeng contract, like the extension, made negative sense to me. Like it made absolutely yeah. zero sense at the time because yeah, maybe you have to pay him two million dollars a year extra what he got 456 is that right i think that's right yeah. or no, 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 no was it 456 or 464 i think it was 456 i think he, well i think he's getting like 14 mil a year so that would be more than the 60 oh yeah he got 463 oh so they pay gorgie jang four years 63 million i like gorgie jang i think that he is a useful basketball player who probably will get some like if he was on the open market this year I think he probably gets something similar to that, right? Like, I don't think it's out of the question that that is around what he gets. I wouldn't pay that much for him. But, you know, relatively young player entering his prime. You're getting 27, 28, 29, 30 uh, years out of him. Okay, sure. My problem is, is now it significantly hampers what they have to do. And I just don't see the upside in saving $2 million on a Gorgie Jeng deal. Like if you think he's going to get $18 million a year, I just say, okay, that's fine. I'll pay the 18 when someone offers it, you know, like I don't, I don't see the utility in this deal to Gorgie Jeng. And that's a significant problem for me because it hampers what they can do. They can't like, they have to make moves now around, you know, their roster to keep Gorgie Jeng on the roster into they might have to trade Ricky Rubio essentially because of this, even though they might be trading Ricky Rubio anyway. But like to actually get cap space, they have to now trade Ricky Rubio because of this if they want to sign Paul Millsap. The other thing that that does run in they do run into is the idea of the minimum holds getting bigger. Also the cap going down doesn't help this. But basically so if they could get out of Cole Aldrich's contract, which is seven million, I think that's possible. Then even with with minimum holds, they could get to about twenty five. I I don't think that's enough for Millsap. And then of course, if they're willing to move on from Rubio instead, then you then you start to get into full max range and all that kind of stuff with him. So they, they have some options here. They're not set in stone yet, and but I like where they are. And you know maybe Jimmy Butler leaves in two years, but at least they get to kind of see this. And I don't think that any of the players that they gave up were going to be the centerpiece of the next great Wolves team. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that Ricky Rubio, the thing with him is, though, he would be a really good unselfish player to, like, facilitate the growth of Towns and Wiggins. Like, that. that's, I think, really important and really nice to have. But, you know, I guess in theory, like, there's nothing that's, like, stopping that from happening anyway. You know, like, uh, there's nothing that says they can't go out and get someone different than Ricky Rubio who can shoot and who can finish at the rim and can do some other things. 
Anything else you want to say on the trade, or do you want to? Oh, let's let's talk a little about Lowry Markkinen. Markkinen, I like him as a player. I don't like him more than Dennis Smith, or I I think I with Frank, I liked Markkinen more just because I think you can use him in more places. But my concerns with him is that I think he's a talented power forward who might be better moving his feet. You know, like I think maybe the NBA system could work a little bit better for him defensively. But I think you need the right pick and roll point guard. You need a good defensive center. And I'm not completely sure they have either of those in the short or the long term in Chicago. So, yes, I think that generally I agree with you. I would not have taken Lowry Mark. Well, <laughs> I might have taken Lowry Marketing given the fact that the Bulls now have like six point guards that can't really shoot. And adding Dennis Smith to that mix doesn't really help anything. Um <laughs> Having said that, yeah, I agree. In a vacuum, he's a little bit lower end of a prospect. But I think that like, he got treated like chopped liver last night a little bit. Like He's still an unbelievable offensive talent. He's going oh, yeah. to enter the NBA as one of the three best shooting centers in the entire league, in my opinion. And he's going to do that at 20 years old. That's how elite of a level shooter this guy is. And you add the fact that he can kind of do some stuff off the bounce. You add the fact that he can kind of, you know, maybe do some stuff passing the ball. He didn't really show it at Arizona, but he was more asked to do uh, different things at Arizona. There's a lot of reason to think that he is genuinely going to be an all-star level talent offensively. Defensively, there are concerns. No doubt about it. Uh, I will say that, again, I think those got slightly overblown by the fact that Arizona and Sean Miller run an incredibly conservative defensive scheme. So his blocks and steals don't necessarily look commensurate with other high-level center talents or other marginal center talents even. Um, we saw the same thing with, for instance, Aaron Gordon. Uh, Aaron Gordon is one of the best athletes in the entire NBA, and still ended up being a guy that uh, posted like under a block and under a steal a game, which should never happen given his thing, right? Like given his ability. So I think that he got relatively underrated by what his, uh, what his, I'm sorry, my dog apparently peed on my uh, mattress when my girlfriend got home out of excitedness. So I'm a little bit scatterbrained, but um, nonetheless, okay. uh, yeah, I think Lori marketing got a little bit underrated. I think so too. And I wonder what this is going to do with Miritich just because you don't need to have those two guys on the same team. It's just not a great use of resources. Sure. Yeah. I think what, what they could do is just play the waiting game. And if Miritich gets a value contract, just match it or whatever. And then let him, and then uh, ideally just find him, find a place for him later on. I think that totally works. Yeah. But they could, Chicago doesn't have enough resources to to really let him go for nothing, especially considering they already did that once recently. And so I don't I don't think we need to say too much more on that. Yeah. How do you feel about Fra how do you feel about Frank with the Knicks? He is the prototypical triangle point guard, which is good. There is no circumstance where I am taking him over Malik Monk. None. Uh, I understand the fact that he is a high upside player who still has not fully grown into and matured within his body. So I think there's, so like whenever I talk about Giannis and how I kind of missed on Giannis, right? Like I'm not saying I missed on him in the draft. I'm saying I missed on him after I saw him a little bit uh, within the NBA. I thought that he was uh, never really going to get to the athletic point that was necessary for him to become a star. What I didn't realize was that he was going to get, and I mean, this is going to sound stupid, but like, 
I didn't realize he was going to get as big and as strong as he has. Like, I just didn't think he would develop physically as he has. With Frank, I think there's definitely potential for him to develop physically at an extraordinarily quick rate and an extraordinarily fast rate once he gets on NBA training programs, right? Once he uh, gets on NBA nutritional programs and gets with these uh, trainers that can really take care of him. But he's just so much farther away from being an effective basketball player than Malik Monk right now because Malik's skill off the ball offensively is just at such a high level. He is an incredible shooter. He's an elite level athlete. Yeah, he's still more of an open space athlete. He's not great at getting to the rim. He's not great at uh, using his dribble to attack the rim. But at the same time, there's just too many positives to his game for me to go, I'm going to take the project who fits my system better than I'm going to take Malik Monk, who averaged 20 points a game this year and is the most explosive scorer in this draft, probably. Also, like, so I ended up kind of watching, when I watched more film of of Nokina, I started thinking of him more as a two than a one, just because I think he's better off ball offensively than on. And he's, he's not a bad shooter. I actually think he's nice in that way. So then you're actually comparing something closer to apples to apples with the two of those guys. And... I like Frank just because I think he has more upside as a ball handler to me, but the Knicks are in this weird place because basically their whole roster is in flux. Yeah. So I think I still have Frank over Monk, but I (laughs) certainly... Yeah, well, we'll see. I hope not. But 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 like I can I I I can see your argument. I I, I just think I like his Frank ceiling a little bit more. But they're both. I, I mean, the idea to me, the bigger issue is Dennis Smith. Like you're going to need a point guard at some point. If Frank, if you see him as a two, like I do, then you're opening up that spot for somebody. But you still need to actually get them. Right. So like the thing is with you know Dennis Smith in a vacuum and if you're going to be intelligent about the way that you run your organization yeah if you assume that phil's gone next year and the whole triangle thing is done then dennis smith's a better pick right exactly like you would have a long-term partner in the pick and roll with chris Stapps porzingis you would have a like actual high upside potential all-star level point guard in new york where they would embrace him in every way they would embrace his mentality in every single sense of the the swagger with which he plays the uh, aggressiveness with which he plays they would love him the problem is they're not run competently they are apparently not deciding to uh you know build their system around the talents on their roster they are deciding to run the triangle which you know maybe you can still win with maybe not i don't like really think that you know you can't win doing X or Y. I think it's all dependent on putting your players in the best position to succeed. Uh, and talent is what matters most. But they, they clearly don't feel that way. And it's really stupid to me. It's really dumb and it makes no sense. It's frustrating just the idea of, of I mean, the whole thing. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell in the Knicks just because at this point, I don't find them that interesting. You know, if yeah. they actually make a move with Porzingis, then it happens. But other than that, it's a lot of, like, it's a lot of hot air that be- will become relevant. It reminds me a lot of the, the, like four hours before the draft where you hear like this murmuring, but nothing actually happens. It's just like, well, let me know when things actually occur. And and that's kind of where I am with the Knicks right now. Well, the, but here's the thing with the Porzingis thing. 
I talked to a couple teams that were like, you know, talking to the Knicks about this, right? Like that at least like reached out. What the Knicks were asking for was insane. Like one of the most reasonable offers I heard was Devin Booker in like number four was like around what they were asking for. There's no circumstance where the Suns are going to do that. Like you can make an argument that that's what Chris Stapps is worth. And I think that that argument is probably correct. I like Chris Stapps a lot more than I like Devin Booker. But there's just no circumstance where that's going to happen. Like they were asking for something like that. They were asking for something like, you know, four top five picks or three top five picks or like, you know, what, what, like, comment, like values commensurate with that, right? That's what they were asking right. for. And if you're asking and- for that, no one's going to do that. So what the hell is the purpose of all of this? Why are you going to the media and saying we have to do what's best for our team whenever it's just going to piss off your best player? It's going to piss off the guy that has legitimate Hall of Fame talent that's 21 years old, and he's already angry at you. It's just the dumbest goddamn thing in the whole world. And on top of all of that, those conversations happen normally. So the only part that was the problem here was putting it out in public. I have no no problem with the Knicks asking for the moon for Porzingis, I think teams should do more of that. I think teams should approach, you know, the idea that they're really only like five or six players in the entire NBA that are untradeable. I think that's probably a healthier way of looking at it. But you don't do those negotiations in public to make a statement towards this kid who's who's still playing hard. He didn't show up to his exit interview. Who cares? And Clearly you, you're not... <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah, it shouldn't have been rhetorical because we knew the answer. And it's the same crap that happened with Bellow. Yeah. Like, trying to publicly shame somebody is not a good look. And it is shocking to me that the person who is making this specific mistake is somebody who part of what made them famous was managing egos of star talent. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. Um, I saw someone have this hot... Like, what would have happened if he had done this to Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen? (laughs) I don't think that would have ended well with Mike. (laughs) No, it would not have. Like, oh, like if if Scottie Pippen... Well, let's say Pippen's probably more fair just because none of these guys are Mike. But let's say Scottie Pippen didn't show up to his exit interviews and then coach slash GM Phil Jackson says, oh, well, we need, you know... We, we think we might be better without him. Like, without him, we need to do our due diligence. That's like, that's not the way this works. Yeah, no. I mean, someone had this hot take on the internet, and I can't remember who it is. Um, if, the, if the NBA felt that they had to uh, step in with the 76ers, why do they feel like they did not have to step in with the New York Knicks, who are being run even less competently than... Uh, the Sixers were given the fact that like they're essentially just throwing players under the bus and there has to be some sort of repercussion here from the players union. Right. That's a hot take. I agree with like, I actually agree with this. Like the NBA like needs to do something and step in. Oh, you you want to, you want a hotter one than that. I feel like Jim Zolan is a great example of why the league needs to have a safety structure in place so that they can buy out bad owners. Yeah, I agree. 100% agree. They are losing, I, as much as I kill the league, and I do, for talking so much about revenue, I asked Commissioner Silver about the idea of expansion, and he talked about, oh, you know, stable financial footing. It's like, the league also has put teams in markets that it's hard to succeed, and they chose to do that. I think that's a big mistake. The bigger thing that they've done is because they want to be owner-friendly and because the commissioner serves at the pleasure of the owners, all of which is just the structure of this, to not have a system in place for teams that are just killing themselves 
because for something that that they can't change because they don't have a system. Sterling should not have been ousted because of this racist part. He should have been ousted 15 years before because he was costing the league both prestige and a ton of revenue by running a like a, a a fence basically out of one of the best markets in the league. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like we talk about like how the league is essentially losing money because of the playoffs and how there weren't enough playoff teams this year. Like the projection for the league also like comes from the fact that the Knicks don't matter. They do not matter at all. Like, what was this cap initially projected at this year? It was like 106 or something, right? Yeah, I think it was 106 or 108. Yeah, and then it, it was dropped. 108. You're Pretty, right. It, yeah. And it's down to 99 in part because, A, there were just fewer playoff games this year. That was what dropped it like 2 million. Well, and the owner spent way too much money last summer. And the owner spent way too much money last summer, to be sure. But also, like, let's not act like these incompetently run franchises in Chicago and New York don't actually, like, make a difference monetarily here. They do. It, it really hurts the overall, uh, you know, fiscal, uh, fiscal responsibility of the league to have these markets just be a total dumpster fire and joke. Well, and you know that also because they're still on TV all the time, even though they're not yes. good. Like you think about what, what, how you could ratchet this up if, and and we'll see this if the Lakers can actually get good in a couple of years. And so, yeah, it's it's unbelievable to me that you have that those those are immovable. Like that 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 an owner and it's uh, I I think it's the greatest competitive advantage in the NBA right now. Solid the Warriors are a good example of this. Like the I'll use I, I mean it sucks because I'm a Bay Area guy. I'm writing a book on the Warriors. I don't like making everything about them. But I covered the transition from Chris Cohan to, to Joe Lacob and Peter Gruber. And yeah, they had some missteps. A lot of well. A lot of the success they have is more complicated and you don't want to attribute it to Lake Goober, especially considering they inherited Stephen Curry. Their approach and their willingness to do this the right way, spending money in the right places, bringing good people, do a lot of the non-salary cap stuff yeah. really was important here. And there are a lot of teams that wouldn't have done that and that put themselves in a bad position for that reason, whether it's that they're not proactive, they insert themselves in it, or they're just not willing to spend when their team is worth spending on. Yep. Yeah, I know. That's that's 100% right. Ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the NBA right now. There is zero, zero doubt about it. We see what's going on in Chicago where we didn't even get to the most ridiculous part of their night last night. Selling Jordan Bell to competent ownership in Golden State, as you just mentioned, was the funniest thing that happened last night. They sold it for $3.5 million. Do you know where they got that pick, Danny? Yeah, that's the pick from the from the Kings Top 10 Protected. Yeah, the Kings Top 10 Protected pick that they got from Cleveland for Luol Deng. So they got essentially two picks, Andrew Bynum and... $3.5 million for Luol Deng. Neither of those picks ended up mattering at all. I think that they actually might have sold at least one of them. Um, so they essentially sold Luol Deng for $3.5 million after he gave, what, like nine years to that organization and played like the most minutes probably uh, outside of like Jordan and Pippen in franchise history. Yeah, that was one bet on the Kings being competent that didn't work out. Yeah, no, for sure. Like all the Kings had to do was being like, was be like relatively somewhat competent and they couldn't even like finish in the top 
like or finish outside of the top ten in the standings. It's it's insane. Despite having Demarcus Cousins, a legitimate All NBA player, yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. Though I'm not sure if Cousins was on the, that trade was made in 2011. Do you remember what year he was drafted? Was he 2010? Yeah, he was John Wall. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, okay. So he was on the team then. So Jesus, I think I think that trade was 2011. I might be wrong in that. And the other great thing about that trade is that Omri Caspi was involved in it, going the opposite way of what you'd think because he was traded along with that pick for JJ Hickson, if memory serves. I might be wrong. On no, that. you're right. I know he was involved in the trade. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Um, and I know Cavs fans don't like Emory Caspi, which I also find funny, but cause he wasn't good there. Yeah. But so, uh, let's, let's kind of do, I don't want to go through every pick. I don't think that's worthwhile in the, in the rest of the first round of the players that we, we haven't discussed. There are a couple that I wanted for clarifying questions. So Bam Adebayo, talented guy physically. Do you think that Miami is going to maximize him? And what do you think that looks like? So I actually love this fit scheme wise because what bam's best skill is right now is kind of just utilizing his athleticism not only in terms of explosiveness vertically but also in terms of his lateral mobility uh eric spolster is going to be able to do a lot with him defensively like with Hassan Whiteside, they kind of can't like do what Spolstra kind of showed was his preferred style when LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and stuff were there, where they would just blitz the hell out of everyone and, you know, really get aggressive defensively. Bam's going to allow them to do more of that, I think, uh, defensively, where you can legitimately like push him out and force like, you know, point guards or uh, ball handlers to make tough decisions. And he can recover. He's quick enough to do that kind of stuff. Um, so I really do like the fit there. Can you play him next to Hassan Whiteside? Probably not. Uh, I think that that is uh, worth mentioning. But if you kind of don't think Hassan Whiteside's going to be there much longer, uh, I like the fit. I like the pick. <laughs> DJ Wilson, I watched a little bit of him at Michigan, ended up on the Bucks. How do you how do you like that fit? Let's say let's let's ignore the Jabari Parker of it all, just because he he's out for a little while now. We don't know, but like, how do you like him with the other guys they have? I think it's fine. Uh, it's more of what they have, right? They they really do value kids that are uh, you know high character with long arms uh, with elite athleticism. I always worry about the Michigan factor with these guys, right? Uh, and DJ Wilson, I don't think is like a wild lateral athlete. I think he's more of an explosive vertical athlete. And if you're making me pick between the two in the NBA, I would probably rather have the lateral ability. Having said that, it's it's fine. Uh, it's not a pick I would have made. I DJ Wilson at 27 on my board, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you I think it's going to end up being like a disaster either. It fits their ethos. It fits what they want to do. Um, I understand it at least. Speaking of fitting ethos and what they want to do, I enjoyed Terrence, Terrence Ferguson going to the to the Thunder for kind of similar reasons. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he is again pretty much uh, exactly what they look for—a good kid with high level athleticism. Right? Uh, we'll see if that works out. He can shoot the ball a little bit. Uh, still streaky in that regard, but I think as he kind of gets stronger, he's going to be a really good shooter going forward. Um, some concern there, no doubt, but we'll see. Other than OG, what was your favorite and least favorite pick from from 16 to 30? Oh, man. Um, least favorite was probably Justin Patton at 16. Uh, we can just start there. Um, I, I do not understand why the Timberwolves felt they needed to take another center when they already have Carl uh, Anthony Towns under contract for a long time. Gorgie Jang, who they just gave this massive extension to, and Cole Aldrich for another two years. They're all centers. I don't think Justin Patton can play the four. 
I, I don't I don't understand that pick at all, to be honest. Favorite pick from sixteen to thirty is probably gonna be Derek White at number twenty nine. I had Derek White at number sixteen on my board. High, high level of skill with White. He can score at all three levels. Explosive vertical athlete. Um, really good in between game. He can pull up off the bounce, uh, knock down three point shots. I think he hit 39 or 40% from three this year. Um, just, just an easy, perfect Spursian pick that, uh, is going to pay dividends for them basically immediately. Do you think he can play with DeJounte Murray theoretically? Yeah, I think he's going to be able to play both the one and the two. So people were always looking for the next, like, Malcolm Brogdon in this draft, right? And it always came back to Josh Hart, it felt like. I didn't really get that because Hart's more of like a 2-3, doesn't really have the physical tools that, uh, you know, that Malcolm Brogdon did. And Derek White doesn't have those physical tools either, but he's also a combo point guard, right? Like he's going to be able to take over the one because he has positional size to play the one at six foot five with a six, eight wingspan. He can handle the ball. He's a good passer. He can knock down shots. I see more Malcolm Brogdon in him than I do a guy like Josh Hart. That said, I agree with you. That said, I like Josh Hart to the to the Lakers. I did too. for the simple for the simple reason that that vision I laid out when we talked about Lonzo and them. I think Josh Hart fits in very well with that too. Absolutely does. Absolutely does. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he's also really going to fit in. He's going to give them a bit of an edge on the perimeter. He is mentally tough. And also, if you look at their roster, they kind of don't have any guards right now. That's a significant issue, I think. Um, he's going to get immediate playing time. He's going to play next to Alonzo, and he's going to be really good, I think. Well, and especially considering that the guards they do still have, like Jordan Clarkson, might not be long for their team if they need to clear the space that's still left. Right. And, and to be honest, like I would probably rather play Josh Hart next to Lonzo Ball. Jordan Clarkson certainly, I think, at this stage, a better player. But if you have to give me someone that I think will accentuate Lonzo's talents, I would probably rather have Josh Hart right now because you need someone who's going to be physically capable of defending. So if if you were if you had the head coaching job, if you were Luke Walton right now and you had no concern like about your job security, your whole job was to basically make sure that you're putting yourself in the best position moving forward. Do you have an idea of what your what your starting let's just say your starting four would be for the Lakers from 1 through 4? Oh man. I can give you mine if you, while you think about it if you want. Yeah, go ahead. I would go Lonzo, Josh Hart, Dang, and Brandon Ingram. That allows you to possibly rehab Dang's value. Maybe you can get, because I think they're going to have to move him if they want to do this big swing, what's coming up. Yeah. I think that it could work really well there. And you, you, I think you get a more representative sample with Lonzo Ball of kind of how this might go. Yeah, I like that. I think that's probably what I would go with too. Um, I think you can realistically maybe make an argument for, you know, trying to play Brandon Ingram at the three and getting him more comfortable on the perimeter, uh, as a scorer just for his development. Uh, and you can say like Lonzo, Josh Hart, Brandon Ingram, uh, Julius Randle. I really like Julius Randle though. So yeah. And they have a weird center dynamic. But they still have Brooks. So, I mean, at this point, for now, I mean, we don't know if they'll have him long term, which also kind of is this weird complication in the whole thing because Brooke is a good player. But do they want to figure out, like, whether Randall can play some center? Do they want to do any of that stuff or do they already feel comfortable with where they are? Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't I don't really know how to answer that right now. But they do have a nice little forward uh, backup combination for me and Larry Nansen, uh, Vita Zubak. 
Oh yeah, I like Zubac a lot too. Um, he looked he looked good in summer league. I, I think he has I think he has a nice pulse and and I and I like Tarek Black too. I think he's a reasonable player. I, I don't I don't think he's going to necessarily be long for that team after this year just because of the way that he is in their timetable. But nice to have around. Yeah, for sure. Second round, lots of different kind of approaches here. Lots of Oregon guys too, with Dylan Brooks, Jordan Bell, and Tyler Dorsey all going. I'll I'll say one pick that stood out to me partially because we saw him at the Hoop Summit. I think Isaiah Hartenstein is going to be a a really nice fit with the Rockets, assuming the back stuff can get cleared out just because he can kind of play both big man positions and maybe he's going to be more of a Rio Grande guy, at least, at least early on, depending on when they bring him over. But I like the fit. Yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure he might want to come over sooner rather than later, whether or not that's this year or not, we'll see. But yeah, he, he's an interesting fit from a skill perspective for them. I think he's going to be able to run screen and roll with James Harden. He's going to be able to, uh, you know, outlet pass in their transition game. He's going to be able to rebound and hopefully space the floor shooting the basketball. Uh, needs a little bit more development there, certainly, but not a bad pick at all. I think that stands out for sure. Another one that, I mean, beyond the fact that they gave up nothing other than money to do it, I think Jordan Bell is a wonderful fit for the Warriors. Yes. They yes. need... They don't need scoring. Yeah, he is limited in that way. I don't Doesn't think they matter. Care. And he he's has a lot of dog in him. I've enjoyed him for a little while now, and he's going to be in the right system. And th- they do not have an urgency to play him right away, but they are open to it if he earns it. Genuinely does not matter that he can't score right now outside of five feet. He is perfect for their defensive scheme. He can switch every screen. Uh, he can legit be left on an island with guards. Uh, the fact that they can play Kevin Durant and, uh, and uh, Draymond Green at center next to him is really going to help him because his one weakness defensively, in my opinion, is that he gets beasted sometimes. Like if you've, if you've stood next to Jordan Bell before, and you've stood next to other like legitimate NBA centers before, right? You can see that he's genuinely just like not a big guy for that, like within that, you know, realm. He's obviously huge. He's six foot nine or six foot eight, uh, like 225 pounds. Like that's a large human. But in the realm of NBA centers, these guys are trees. He's not a tree. He is uh, a mobile athletic dude who can do some stuff grabbing rebounds, but he's going to get beasted by the biggest guys. The fact that the Warriors can run out lineups next to him with two other uh, small ball fives that are very capable is going to make his life so, so, so easy. And if David West comes back, they could play those two guys together, too. Yes, would be a- another great example of a bench unit there. Just, yeah, perfect. Absolutely perfect. Another one, partially just because of my well-known biases here. If you didn't know anything about the medical reports and you watched UCLA last year, and you said, hey, the same team took E.K. Onabogu and T.J. Leaf, you go, oh, nice job. I guess that, you know, I did that. And I don't think you would have expected Leaf to get taken a full round ahead of him. Oh, that makes sense because of the physical stuff, but I think it's fascinating that they're going to be teammates again. Yeah, I agree. I think that one place where I kind of screwed up my big ward, um, you know, I'm I'm not... uh, I'm I'm not uh, mistake-free in this realm by any stretch, was... I ended up putting TJ Leaf lower than EK and I I'm not even like accounting for the injuries. Like I was low on EK all year and at the end I just decided, you know what? I, I fell into the trap of groupthink a little bit. I think with EK it's a steal to be sure if he holds up, he's going to be an interesting player. 
I mean, he's 250 pounds. He has 5% body fat. He already has degenerative knees. You have to worry about what happens to him as he continues to like just generally fill out as every human does from the time that they're 18 to 22. Doesn't have a whole lot of skill level yet. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I get it. I understand the appeal. I think he can move a little bit. I'm not the biggest EK guy. Like, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's fine to me. It was a fine pick. Yeah, I think that's fine. We wouldn't have talked about him other than he's a Bruin. But what other second round picks? Were there any other ones? We talked about Ojale. I know that's one that stood out to you outside of that that really did. Yeah, so Jawan Evans at 39 to the Clippers. Another purchased pick. Yeah, uh, you know, teams did a great, great job buying picks, I think. Um, you know, Jawan Evans is, he, I have a really, really good stat on Jawan Evans, actually. So here it is. So in the Ken Palm era, which is from 2001 to current, there have been two point guards in three seasons uh, out of those 16 seasons that have led a college basketball team to the number one offense in all of college basketball by offensive efficiency um, without another NBA talent on their team. Can you name them? Well, I'm assuming one is him. Yep. To number one. Uh, wow. I can't. The other one is Chris Paul, currently a member of oh. the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, they play very similar styles of basketball. They're both like those domineering, uh, you know, terrific in the pick and roll, great footwork, understand how to get spacing, understand how to get separation, uh, hyper quick first step, even if they're not like super elite athletes. Um, I had Jawan Evans at 17 on my board. He goes 39 to the Clippers. Like if, if he ends up playing 30 minutes a game next year if Chris Paul leaves I'm not going to be shocked he is he is going to make every team that passed on him I think very disappointed from number 20 onward he seems like such a Celtics guy from that description <laughs> well he can shoot a little bit's the problem yeah to shoot too much <laughs> um no I mean he's he's a little he has like a little bit of that like little man syndrome as well which is a good thing you kind of have to have that to play in the nba right like you have to have well doesn't frank mason have a little bit of that too Oh, for sure yeah it's great they're they're both awesome i had higher grades on them than i think any other like draft analyst i I love them i I think that they're both going to play in the nba for a decade did you like jonah bolden i did not uh and that's because for a variety of reasons (laughs) We'll, we'll say that okay any other ones? I mean, I know a lot of people really like Monty Morris. I know that his statistical projections were unbelievable out of his his time playing at Iowa State. I am a little bit surprised that the Bulls didn't end up with him. Yeah, love Monte Morris. I uh, had him at number 34 on my big board. Uh, I've had him as like a borderline first round pick since February. So I felt very validated when our uh, good buddy Kevin Pelton had his statistical projections get released and he was at like 16 or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it certainly seems that way, and it was it was it's interesting, like to to kind of see where this is going to go because I think a lot of teams just took a, they didn't take a lot of necessarily like European flyers and all that. They took guys that they're actually hoping will be on their team. Maybe the advent of the two way contracts will open some of that stuff up in the later guys. Well, I think it'll. I think the two ways will certainly help, no doubt. I also think that part of this is the international class this year was a joke. Like it was just a, it, it was. was a really bad year. Um, you know, like Alexander Fazenkov is a guy that I've really been high on for a while. Uh, and that's mostly because I enjoy watching him play. He won the MVP of the Greek league when he was 19. He's moved to Barcelona since then. He's also six foot nine and would immediately be the worst athlete in the NBA. Like the, uh, Ognin Yaramaz is 
like a 29%, 25% three-point shooter as a 22-year-old that, yeah, he's super fun to watch. And I have enjoyed watching him for a long time because he is this like six foot three white point guard who tries to dunk on dudes all the time. He's the way that I described him on my podcast was he, do you remember Sam McDuffie, the guy who went to Michigan that was a running back? Yes. Yeah. He's basically like European basketball, Sam McDuffie to me, where like, I like that. He just like tries to do super cool stuff all the time. And I dig that, but he's also like not awesome because yeah, he can't really shoot and doesn't really defend all that well. And, you know, doesn't do like a whole lot of other stuff. Um, having said that, I hope he makes the NBA because it'll be a more fun place. But like when you're talking about like those two guys being the internationals that I am most excited about beyond Matthias Lasort, who actually I think is a very worthwhile European stash and probably will make it over at some point. Whenever those are the guys, like, it's hard for me to get excited about it. Like, Marco Guterich was a guy that I thought could be drafted. He's a lefty guy with, like, the biggest goddamn balls of any player in all of European basketball. Like, this guy will throw it up from 30 feet away, and he's a really good shooter. But, again, like, I don't know that he's athletic enough. Like, I don't know that, you know, a guy that's that hunched over that plays like that can really make an argument to be drafted. It's tough. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering how some of those I mean, there are some kind of more new agey Euros, like Hartenstein is one of these guys where he looks like a more modern NBA player. But you know and, and I think a good example of this is Tay Dosich. Like Tay Dosich is a spectacular player. Of course, in his prime he absolutely could have played in the NBA. No questions. Oh, asked. I, I think and he, he can could. yeah, I think he can now. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean but it's just I think that there's a, a a strain of those guys that are just super talented but not physically talented in the same level that I just don't know how they're going to work as a starter. They can be backups, no problem. But I I don't know, and I I love those guys as you know. Like those are some of my favorites in the league, and there are also like Mushidi not being in this class. I think he was somebody who like he's one of those kind of new agey guys that I think can work in the modern NBA too. Yeah, Arnold is Kolboka. Uh, you know, like six foot ten kid that's grown two inches over the course of the last year. That kind of stunted his development a little bit because he had to like relearn like how to how to use his body kind of, and he was already super skinny to begin with. But he's also like probably the best European shooter in this draft. Uh, he's just a ridiculous, ridiculous shooter, and he can actually put the ball on the deck. Like losing those guys, losing uh, some of the others that pulled out uh, Rodion Crooks. Uh, well, and then what happened to Jean, of yeah, course. Yeah, Jonathan Jean being diagnosed with Marfan syndrome. Uh, yeah, it sucks. A, a lot of it really, really sucks. So I, I I said that I would have used a pick, one of those late ones, on Jean just for the idea basically being that if he ever is eligible to play, just because I think he's that talented. But would you have done that? Probably not. Um, yeah, I, I didn't put him on my last big board just because – you know, I, I don't know that he's ever going to be cleared. Like, can I really, you know, rationalize a guy who might never play basketball again, taking him over LJ Peak? Probably not. Can I rationalize taking him over like Jeremy Morgan? Probably not. Uh, you know, just going down my list, like even. Well, the, the reason the reason being that, like, if you were, let's say, 58, 59 or 60, that any of those guys, unless the other team wants your player, you could just make them an offer as an undrafted free agent. And with him, you can just basically hold on to those rights forever. That's true. 
I don't know. It's it's not. A, it's also not a big deal. Yeah. You know, like obviously it's a big deal for Jean and for everybody that he that he the, the, was diagnosed and everything like that. But just in terms of where this is going, so it's just something that I kept in the back of my mind. But we don't have much time. Uh, just kind of big picture. Anything that we haven't really discussed that you feel like is an important takeaway from the experience last night? Um, not really. I, I don't know. I mean, I liked what the Celtics did. I liked what the Clippers did. I liked what the Mavericks did. Um, trying to think of like any other. Oh, I have one. I think Malik Monk is a wonderful fit on the Hornets. Yeah, getting scoring for them was really good. San Antonio, really good. Um, oh, I had one. I didn't get to watch much Zach Collins. What do you think of him? You know, I like I like the idea of shooting for upside there from Portland. But, you know, yeah, I think it's fine. Trading 15 and 20 for him I think is fine. Um, good player, very mobile at seven feet tall, uh, very skilled footwork, great uh, fluid feet, um, can shoot the ball, wasn't really much of a passer, wasn't really asked to make a ton of advanced reads. And I do wonder about that kind of stuff because he didn't really start. He started like one of his last five years in like high school basketball and college basketball because at high school he went to Bishop Gorman and sat behind Steven Zimmerman and Chase Jeter uh, just because Bishop Gorman had the most ridiculous collection of center talent that seems like imaginable in high school basketball. Um so I don't know. We'll see. He's a project for sure, but he's a super, super high upside one that on a permanent basis was absolutely unbelievable this year at Gonzaga. Yeah, I feel like he's when I've watched him, he looks definitely more to me like a five than a four. And I love Nurkic. Sure. I think he's so so it's a little bit weird in that standpoint. But, you know, I, I think that it's it's justifiable if they didn't have it. What I'm most surprised about with Portland is that they didn't use any of those draft assets to shed salary. But hey, if Paul Allen wants to pay it, by all means. Uh, one last guy I wanted to discuss with you just because I know you're high on him and we didn't see this fit coming. How do you feel about Donovan Mitchell on the Jazz? Yeah, definitely not something I'd considered beforehand. I like it. Uh, I especially like the idea of trying to replenish their backcourt in what's, I don't want to say it's like an eventuality that Gordon Hayward's going to leave. But it seems like there is less than a 50% chance that he might stay. Uh, definitely not telling and reporting anything here that people don't know. But like, I feel like, uh, there is significant reason to believe he might go elsewhere. Um, I, I like the athleticism that Donovan Mitchell brings. I like the fact that he is an excellent hard worker who is, uh, highest of character kids, gonna absolutely work his ass off to get to where he needs to go. Uh, Utah can just use more guys like that. They can always use more talent. Uh, Dennis Lindsay is a big fan of going up to get his guy. And uh, I think that Mitchell very clearly is a guy worth prioritizing. And it also looked like there was kind of a drop off around that point, at least for what Utah was looking for. So if all it costs is Trey Lyles, who's intriguing, I've never been the highest guy on him. But if that's what it costs, I think, you know, that that's not too Man, big for them. I saw Trey Lyles at Summer League last year. I was... I thought he was the best player at Summer League last year that I saw. Like, I thought that he was the guy that was most ready to come in and make a significant impact for his team as a role player. Just didn't happen this year. And, you know, if Trey Lyles is your cost in number 24, I'm okay with using that to go up and get Donovan Mitchell. I kind of think it's a win for both sides. I also, while I'm not the highest on Trey Lyles, I think that he can certainly be a contributor to a good team. He still has plenty of time under team control and all that kind of stuff. But 
what's so weird is like the Nuggets are now just full of these kind of like power forwards who overlap. <gasps> they do. Yeah. I did not understand the Tyler Lydon pick at all. My two least favorite picks of the draft are kind of funny because they actually really fit within the modern NBA. Uh, didn't really get the Tyler Lydon fit in Denver. Also was not a fan of Kyle Kuzma to the Lakers. I just thought that was a rather strong overdraft given what we'd seen of him in college. Um, I get the skill sets, obviously. I get the fact that they're really talented kids, but you know, I'm someone who believes in drafting for fit as well as drafting best player overall and, uh, you know, drafting the best player that will be the best fit in your system and, uh, making sure that you have developmental time to give to that kid to, you know, foster his abilities. And with Tyler Lydon, I don't know where he gets that time between Trey Lyles and Juancho Hernan Gomez and, you know, all of the other guys that they have. I don't, I don't really know, man. I don't, I don't love that. And then Kyle Kuzma, I mean, the Lakers have a billion fours and, you know, everyone in their front court, basically. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And I mean, I think the Lakers one will kind of sort itself out. I didn't, I didn't see too much of Kuzma, which is weird because he's a Pac-12 guy. I just didn't watch that much of Utah this year, but I, I just don't think he, he doesn't look essential to me. And so I like the Josh Hart pick. If they had ended up with Derek, if they ended up with Derek White and Josh yeah. Hart, would have been real interesting. Yeah, Shemi Ojale and Derek White, you know, Josh Hart and Shemi Ojale, Josh Hart and Derek White. Just pick the four-year players who are awesome. I don't care that they played four years in college. They're ready to go. Just take them. Well, and the present value that they get, you're going to get on, if you get them on a rookie scale contract, yeah. you get those guys for four years at a bargain basement price. And then, you know, at that point, maybe you're letting them go, but that's a, that's a worthwhile risk considering some of the other guys that yeah, were on the board. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not someone who is worried about, you know, getting upside at number 27 overall. I want the guys who I know are good basketball players. And Kyle Kuzma is a guy that has talent, to be sure, but he's nowhere near as good at basketball as Shimmy Ojale is right now. So the thing I want to end on is something that I think is absolutely fascinating about this year that's so unusual is that when I was doing my board for Real GM, like I do, I separated into like four basic categories from best to worst. And there were two teams that I put in the bad draft section, but it was both for things not really related yeah. to the draft. It was because I do the whole yeah. week. So it was the Hawks because of the Dwight Howard trade <laughs> and then the Bulls because of the Jimmy Butler trade. And that's amazing. Like that it worked out this way. It's not like I'm in love with every right. guy in this draft and oh, everybody nailed it, but that's the worst draft cool. grade I gave last night. I did pick by pick draft analysis. C minus. Like, that's fine. There was nothing like super egregious on draft night. Now, I don't even know that I would have given Atlanta like an exceedingly bad grade. I know that the Dwight Howard thing like didn't make sense. But well, yeah, and I and, and the Collins pick was fine. I nearly moved them into end, but I thought it was it wasn't great to have the Bulls by themselves. I th while that was appropriate, and I could have just added a new category for abysmal drafts <laughs> and put them in that, which would have been hilarious. And now I'm thinking I should have done. But like, it's it's so weird to have teams just generally be responsible. Yeah, out and there. it's so funny because we have all of these front offices this week that have shown them like shown their ass all week and just been incompetent, like. I love it. I love the fact that there are more, uh, more competent evaluation, uh, you know, techniques. I love the fact that teams are being smarter about using their picks. And to be honest, this was an easy draft year, realistically, I think. Like, it's like last year. So last year, I gave out quite a few bad grades. And the reason I did it, I think, is because there weren't a lot of good basketball players in last year's draft. 
this year there is an exceeding amount of good basketball players. I can go down to like number 45 and where I have like Sundarius Thornwell and I can a hundred percent see that guy being an NBA player, right? Like all of these guys, I have Kyle Kuzma at 46 who got drafted in the first round. Like these guys are actually good basketball players and it's easier for teams to make respectable decisions when they don't have to like, you know, go crazy off board, you know? So let's think back just through some of the guys last year that, that oh, you gave, I think, lower Don draft maker, to. I screwed that up for sure. Papa oh, G. Oh, yeah, that was the worst lottery. I think you were more. I, I still maintain that was the worst lottery pick of like the last decade. You didn't like Denzel, right? Um, it was. I probably gave it like a B minus. I don't remember off the top of my head. Like I was just like, whatever. Are there any other ones? I'm trying to think of other picks that you really didn't uh, let like me last Let me year. go back and look at the 2016 NBA draft order. Um. All right, we've got this thing up. I had a bad grade on – I probably did not grade Marquise Chris all that well because I think that uh, giving up what the Suns gave up for him to get a guy that I had number 16 on my board was pretty egregious. Um, like, to me, the Suns now – or the Kings now have two of the top two assets in that uh, – in that trade, because they have Scalabissier and Bogdan Bogdanovich, both of whom I would rather have the Marquise Chris. Um, what other grades? And you know what's great? Neither of those includes the highest pick that they got in that trade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Kings are the Kings. outrageous. Who else would I have not graded all that well? Siakam, I probably did not give all that high of a grade to. Uh, I thought that was kind of an overdraft. Um diamond stone but we're getting we're getting into the weeds yeah no like last year also like there were there were bad picks but like they were like c-level picks you know like the only two like super bad ones i thought were thon at 10 which was wrong and uh chris and uh and i'm sorry what was the oh papa g papa, papa g, g which is the worst again for me the worst lottery pick of the decade uh, i cannot see that working out but we'll see I also, I'll say this one, like the, the one that I probably did not give a good grade to was Karis Levert. Uh, he went number 20 overall. I still have significant concerns about the feet, uh, that I, I don't know if they're going to last too long. Yeah. I thought he looked better than I expected, but I liked him at Michigan too. I just wondered how long he was going to Yeah. Play. There's that. There's the fact that he's kind of a fake defensive prospect in a way. Like people think, oh yeah, he's like six, seven and long and he can do some stuff. Like he, he might be able to defend. Not really. He doesn't care. Like, he doesn't defend. Um, yeah, there's a list of that, like, guys that... I think Zach Levine was like this until people really started oh, watching him. Like, guys who yeah, yeah, could, yeah, yeah. could became R. Yeah, one team that I gave a super bad grade to was the Hornets because they traded 22 for Marco Bellinelli. Or the, oh, sweet. Oh, is God. that right? The Hornets? Yeah, they traded for now became right. Malachi Richardson. That's yeah, completely yeah, that that was stupid. That was really dumb. And I know that Marco was actually really good for them this year, but like you can't give up eight eight years of potential value of a pick for Marco Bellinelli for a rental. And I mean, think about the the cost. Like that, if they had another cheap guy on their team for this coming year, and I don't think he was essential for the Dwight Howard yeah. trade. No, he he wasn't. Um. Picks I did, re I mean, we can talk about, oh, oh, another one that I didn't like was uh, Yabusele. I was not a fan of that pick. Yeah, I'm still not as big a fan of him as other people are, but I, I enjoyed him in summer league, but I just don't see his place yeah, in the Yeah, I agree. Right I, I don't really get the excitement there either. He's like 6'8 with like a 7-foot wingspan, uh, just a huge body that is, you know, kind of, he's, 
I don't want to say he's not athletic because he is, but he's like big man athletic kind of when he needs to be wing athletic. You know what I mean? He kind of he kind of reminds me of Nate Robinson in that people conflate him being fun with him being interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I very strongly agree with that. Like Ante Zizic, who they got at number 23. I had it like number 14 on my board and I gave them like an A plus for that pick because he's a stud and he continued to be a stud this year in, uh, in Turkey whenever he moved from the ABA or the uh, Adriatic League, I'm sorry, to, uh, you know, to Turkey and playing in Euro League. He's a beast. He's very good. But, you know, Yabusele, I, I didn't get that. Trying to think, you know. I was mad at all the teams that passed on uh, Dunn in, at, at Minnesota and New Orleans for passing on Jamal Murray. I think I was right. Yeah, on that. you were definitely right on that. Um, I have I, I was wrong on Chris Dunn. I'll say that I'd done it number four on my board uh, ahead of Jamal Murray, ahead of who else? Maybe, maybe really just ahead of Jamal Murray and Buddy Heald. Buddy Heald probably looks better than Chris Dunn right now. But I, I had Jalen Brown at five, so I had him ahead of Jalen Brown, and that doesn't look great. But at the same time, I was higher on Jalen Brown than I feel like. 90% of people were so I'm okay with it um yeah no like it's well and the other one that was super funny was Sabonis where like I think a lot of us didn't really like him and then he goes to he ends up in OKC and he starts and he's starting you're like oh that's interesting and then you realize well he's not starting because he's good <laughs> like, so it's like okay maybe we'll yeah he'll be one. he'll be fine he'll be a rotation big man for a yeah. decade he's, he's, he's a backup yeah. and that's fine you know you're getting oh a guy I was wrong on Torian Prince I thought I I didn't believe in him. I thought that he was uh, he was overdrafted. He was too old, and I didn't think he had the upside. He looked good in the. Oh playoffs. yeah, he he's really good. Um, I probably gave that a lower grade. Like I probably gave that like a B minus or a C plus at the time, and probably shouldn't have because I did like Torian Prince. I had him as a top twenty player, but I felt I like, think I felt like they could have gotten him later or something than they did, but. At the same time, just kind of go get your guy in this draft. And I understand that, you know, to an extent. Yeah, and I'm excited now to see what some of these guys do with another year and and maybe getting a chance. TLC might have a shot of being trying some of the spot at the two with Philly, which would be a lot of fun. Scal, of course, blew up. DeJounte Murray might be the starting one for the Spurs. Oh, God. Oh, God. Just for a year. Just for a year. How weird would it be if they do that? Like, go. Prediction. Derek White is their starting point guard. And then, yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, I think it's going to be fun to see which of these guys, maybe Zuchi comes over or Zuchi. Uh, is that Zizic? Right? No, Zu, Zuchi. Oh, oh, the Chinese guy. Yeah. Uh, Joe Chi. Oh, my boy. I ho- hopefully my boy Por- Cornelly uh, comes Peter over. Peter Cornelly. He had a bad year, I believe, in France. Um, I don't care. He was good in summer league that I'm going to ride yeah, that forever. I don't, I don't know that that's going to be the case. Oh, and Zipser was good. Oh, this yeah. Year. I had Zipser as a first round grade. I didn't understand how he fell to 48. Yeah, that was, that was weird. He might be starting at the three for the... I, I'm so team. in on a Zipser Markinen random European country front court. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, a Finn and a German starting for an oh. NBA team. <laughs> One team I gave an exceedingly bad grade to last year was the Clippers. They failed miserably. Just mis- and that miserably. Was right. <laughs> like, they took Michino, which made no sense because he's not an NBA player. And Diamond Stone, who made no sense because he's not an NBA player. I will say this. One team that I... And Bryce. Yeah, Bryce. I actually liked Bryce at 25. But, you know, the the second rounders, two top 40 picks, you need to get better value. They did a great job of that this year and kind of made up for it. But they need to get better value last year. Um, A team that I really liked their draft, where we haven't seen it yet, even though I think we're going to see it in the future, Memphis. 
Um, Memphis ends up. Oh, with DeJon, with, with Deontay well, Davis. They end up taking Wade Baldwin, which I thought was good. I had him like 14, 15, 16 on my board, somewhere in that range. Deontay Davis, I had as like, you know, 13 or so on my board as well. Good pick. Roddy Zagrotz, they trade back in with Boston. Uh, I think they get like a super later future first round pick. Uh, but I think that he's going to be really good too. Um, we haven't really seen the fruits of that yet just because their guys didn't play it on this year. But I, I like that. I liked that draft a lot and continue to like that draft. Why in the world did they take Ivan Rab? Um, well, it's a Chris Wallace thing for sure. He likes, he likes like how many of those, like there, there is a critical mass of those guys. And they had reached that point, like around when they took Deontay Davis and kept Jarrell Martin. And they just keep on adding. He likes guys that were like five star prospects in high school that he considers to be very talented players, but uh, undervalued assets due to their college careers for a variety of reasons. Um, I I think that Rab was a fine pick there. Like, I I don't I don't have any issue with them buying a pick. If if he were taken by another team, I would have been pretty okay with that. I liked other guys more than him, but not. Yeah, no, I, I definitely liked more guys than him. To be to be absolutely honest, but it's it to me it's not an unreasonable pick, I guess. You know, like it's it is what it is. Like what's the what's the pathway towards him playing? There, how many guys being have to get than hurt Deontay for them Davis? to get Andrew Martin? Well, he's definitely better than Jarrell Martin, but like being better, I feel like being better than Deontay Davis and Jarrell Martin like isn't a super like crazy thing next year. But then they still have Jermichael Green, presuming they resign him. They're probably going to resign Zebo, I would think. So then there aren't even really any minutes left. And that's already being the super traditional two bigs most of the time before counting Jermichael Green as a big, which I absolutely Yeah, I'll be interested to see what they do this offseason. You know, having both Jermichael and uh, Zebo as free agents, this does create for them a situation where they do have enough depth to compensate for it. It's just how good is the depth? You know, like we don't really know that yet. Yeah, I think that's they they bought Dylan Brooks too this year. Oh, Which, yeah, yeah, I, I forgot about like I did my podcast last night and, you know, good friend of my program, Chris Stone was like, yeah, they, that was that was a Memphis pick. And I was like, they bought that pick. I didn't know that. Cool. Dylan Brooks is like the most Memphis dude ever. He's like fiery and crazy. He totally is. Yeah. He also had like one of the worst flops I've ever seen. But that's he's fine. Floppy. He's, you know, super fiery. He yells at Coach K, which I am a fan of. Like I am. I'm in on this, man. Yeah, he's a wonderful fit. I'd totally forgotten that they traded. Yeah, for that me pick. too. Um, do we want do we want to talk twenty eighteen at all? Oh uh, well, I I think instead of talking about it, we can just promote that your board went up today at Sporting yeah. News, which is great. Yeah, no, I mean, if you want to learn who are who's interesting in twenty eighteen, please do. I mean, you guys probably know the names already, like Michael Porter, DeAndre Ayton, Luka Doncic, uh, Mohamed Bamba. They're the top four uh, guys that I think I might be a little bit higher on than most. I'll say. Colin Sexton, uh, Bruce Brown, D'Anthony Melton, maybe Bryant Crawford, uh, you know, a few guys like that. Uh, I, I like next year is going to be an interesting draft. I feel like there's a lot less certainty in next year's draft than there was in this year's. Yeah. And w- the other thing that's weird about next year's draft is how many true bigs there are. Yeah. That's and you think about, think about where this is going. I mean, so you have Aiton and Bamba who are both, I mean, Aiton could probably be a four if he wanted to be in the NBA, but you know, he has center size. DeAndre Aiton can be whatever he wants in the NBA. It's all about him wanting it. 
Yeah, Wendell Carter is a five who I like. I've I've seen him a couple times. Robert Williams, like it's crazy. Like so, you think about the assets that these teams that th- they, these teams threw in in the late first round when there were capable wings available for at least a couple of them, and then there are going to be better players to me on the board. Yeah, next year. like if I if I was ranking Tony Bradley on this board, um, I would have Tony Bradley maybe out of the first round. And next year's draft is weaker than this year's draft. I think that's right. Yeah, I think I would have Tony Bradley out of the draft or out of my top 30. Oh, uh, the only thing we could say here, because I'm sure we'll do something before the season starts, is are, is there any particular like colleges that you think are the most yeah. interesting for people who are more NBA That's a good one. Definitely Kentucky as usual. You'll get to see Michael Porter. Uh, You'll get to see a lot of the other guys that are interesting. Robert Williams, uh, Colin Sexton as well. Uh, The SEC next year is going to be pretty decent. Um, where did Bob end up Texas, going? So, Texas, uh, Kansas, that's right. I would say, fun. you know, just watch. Maybe you watch Texas instead of Kansas. Uh, if you're a fan of Andrew Jones, who I am not. But, you know, if you're a fan, go ahead. Uh, Duke has three guys or maybe two guys. On, no, three guys on my big board. And uh, Wendell Carter, Trayvon Duvall, and Grayson Allen. Gary Trent is another guy that's interesting. Some people like Marquise Bolden. If that's your thing, go for it. Uh, you'll also get a chance to see uh, a sneaky pick here for this is Miami. Miami has Bruce Brown, who I have in, t- in 10, uh, Lonnie Walker, who I have at 17, and uh, Dewan Hewell and some other guys that are actually pretty interesting too. Um, who else? Who else? Who else? USC. 100% USC. Chemezi Metu, DeAnthony Melton, both in my first round. Benny Boatwright. Uh Sneaky chance to get into that range as well. Um, you'll get a chance to see Raleigh Alkins and DeAndre Ayton as well. A uh, lot of lot of really interesting guys there. Um, who else? Who else? Who else? Yeah, I think that I think that might about cover it. I'm a big Wichita State's going to be super fun next year. I, I would watch Wichita State. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to see how much how much I get to watch. But I don't like that the guys are kind of decentralized again. But I think it'll work. They out. are a little bit decentralized, you know. Like Michael Porter went to uh, Missouri. Uh, you know, Bomba's at Texas. Miles Bridges is at Michigan State. Michigan State's another good one because they have two lottery guys in Bridges and Jaron Jackson. Uh, Texas A and M's not exactly a powerhouse. Alabama's not exactly a powerhouse. Um, Western Kentucky with Mitchell Roberts Robinson. Uh, <laughs> no comment on that. Um, yeah, uh, there are there. It's going to be a weird year next year. I think that generally the talent level is worse in college basketball next year by quite a considerable factor. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting considering Silver's comments to see whether they approach going back, changing the age limit at some point in the near yeah, term. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Like that, if they do that next year, then all of a sudden that totally changes next year's draft. Oh, I, I don't think they'll do it for next year. I think it's like a thing that they would do like multiple years down the road for twenty nineteen. Yeah, and honestly, I don't I don't see that happening anytime soon. You know, like I think they want to explore it, but. I don't I don't see it happening either. You know, it's just one of those cases. I also think the owners want a concession out of it, even though that's just silly because it's not really something the players should have to concede. Well, there's that like there's the fact that like no one is on the side of these, you know, college players, high school players, etc. European players within the players union because there's just no one that will advocate for them. You know what I mean? So it's it's a very tricky tricky process to me because I guess that there's incentive to change it 
but I don't I don't know what the what the change would be, and it's especially complicated because there's not a full D league yet. I think that that's kind of the next step to all of this, getting the full D league. We'll see though. It's, you know, it's like I said, to me, it's a ways off. Yeah. I think that's totally fair. I was going to ask if you have anything more you always do, but I'll just say thank you so much for taking the time. I think that we actually are done at this stage. I think that's all I got for you, Danny. Thank you as always for having me on. Uh, It's always a blast. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Sporting News. You can read him at Vice. You can read him all over the place. You can also listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does. He does really good work there. And you can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love talking with him. And we're only one episode away from the start of the offseason, the re- like the free agency offseason. Of course, the draft is a big part of that too. And we'll have a lot to cover with that. I'm I'm trying to do something different. That's the plan for next week. Not sure if we'll pull it off, but really hoping to. And between now and then, in all likelihood, come out with the mock-off season for Dunked On, which is our absolute behemoth of a show with the normal cast of characters and we each have teams I actually have to go through my list again and that's going to be part of my weekend work is going through all of that and you can read my analysis of the draft actually at Real GM. I It's the ninth year I've done that. I was way stronger on the lottery guys than anything else but I had thoughts throughout and so went through all the teams and it was a lot of fun to do and I thank the Real GM team for letting me you know continue that even though I have moved kind of beyond where I started there in terms of doing the draft just because I've gotten so much more into the NBA I'll probably have other insights other places maybe SI maybe sporting news just depending on where where it takes me I'm also actually working on the final two chapters of my book on the Warriors because I negotiated with the publisher to save out two chapters for what happened during this season and then numerous edits throughout the other rest of the book. So I'm working on that this weekend too. So we'll see how much written content I get, but I'm working on that. Working on, I think I have three CBA encyclopedia pieces in the offing right now that hopefully will all come out before July 1st. So that's the plan as well. So lots of stuff in the very near term and of course podcasting as well here, dunked on. And wherever else I end up doing stuff, you can follow me, of course, on Twitter at Danny LaRue. That's a good way of keeping up. I should be better about doing my Facebook and stuff, but I don't. So sorry about that. If you want to support this show, there are many ways you can do it. Leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. I really do appreciate that. You can subscribe, download every episode. With would love for you to listen to every second of every one, but if you download it, that's a nice way of showing support too. And the other great thing you can do is check out our sponsors. So for this episode, Blue Apron, blueapron.com slash realgm, three meals for free, including free shipping. And it's it's a great, a great thing you can do. I would say you can also check out the Dunked On merchandise, but apparently that either all sold out or close to it. You can check out natedunkinmba.com. For that, if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue at Danny, sorry, Danny LaRue NBA at gmail.com. And if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I probably don't have the time to respond. You just heard all the stuff I'm working on. But looking forward to that. And then the craziness begins. And what's different for me this time is that I'm going to be spending a lot of that on the road. Uh, I usually I take that first week and really spend it at home, but and then jump to Vegas for Summer League. This year, I'm going to be in Utah for Utah Summer League, which is very exciting because it's a great group of teams this year. That's why I'm choosing to go. So I might actually experience the Gordon Hayward thing where whether he stays or whether he goes in Salt Lake City, which is which is pretty exciting. So that's really enough rambling for right now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 
Hi, I'm David. And I'm Yati, and, and we are a handy couple. It's hard to imagine what it must be like for a guy to pick a ring and propose to the love of his life. But for all the guys out there, I want to say that you need to choose Henny Jewelers. Sales associate Nina was so gracious to me and made the process an enjoyable one. I don't think I've ever seen a ring more beautiful. Check out Henny Jewelers online at hennyjewelers.com or follow them on social. They're sure to become your jeweler for life.